WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 325. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 24th of May, 2018. In today's episode, an Airbus lands with the nose wheel retracted, a business jet slides off the end of a runway, and monkey manic Monday at the San Antonio airport. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the Luftwaffe pilot and ye old pub. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 325 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. And joining me this week from her beautiful lakeside... Doctor? Oh, Doctor? wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where in the world is Dr. Steph? She's not here with us today, and nobody knows, well, only a handful of people know, where she is in the world, and we miss her, and you know what? It's her birthday today, so we're really... Yeah, what a place to spend her birthday in a penitentiary. Oh, oh damn. Nick, <laughs> she specifically told us not to mention that on the show. No, I'm sorry. Oh, boy. So it's only for a few weeks. Yeah. In a male penitentiary, no less. <laughs> Poor girl. All right, let's move on. <laughs> From his country estate outside of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAFF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi, Captain Dana, seeing you there in the corner, hiding away. Great to be back on the show. Looking forward to another good one. Dr. Steph's not here. That means we can have fun. I know, it's going to be fun. Oh, yeah. And... Last but not least, from his mobile recording studio in Mobile, Alabama, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Hello, everybody, and I think you need to say no longer a pilot, it's now Captain. So well, I'm you're really a cap, you're a pilot, too. Well, that's true. Well, I try to be at least, but uh, <laughs> I pretend I, draw, I at least dress up in my monkey suit and walk around looking like one, I guess. Hey, great to be back. Another fantastic episode, 325. Looking forward to another fun afternoon, especially with the debauchery that's going to happen now that Dr. Steph's not here to, to monitor us. So, yes, looking yes. forward to it. Okay, again, Dr. Steph, we miss you sorely. Love you. And we love you. And, um, uh, but uh, we hope you're happy having a happy birthday. I'm sure you are. And uh, we have uh, some uh, so a special something for you uh, that will play. Well, uh, what the heck? Shall we play it right now? 
since we're talking yeah, about Dr. Steph and her uh, happy birthday. Go, go okay. for it, Dr. Steph. You may recognize you may you may recognize this voice. Okay, so before I get to the crux of this little piece, I feel I have to offer a bit of a disclaimer. In this world of political correctness, feminism, and the Me Too movement, some of the things said here may just sound wrong. It might even unintentionally offend someone. So please know ahead of time, that's not my objective. And those of you that know me will completely understand. Those of you that don't know me, well, let me tell you a little story that also may be the greatest compliment I've ever received, and one that wasn't intended for me to hear. You see, at one time, I was employed by a social service agency and was given the responsibility of a solo overnight shift in what was then called a girl's home. The seven or eight young women who stayed in this home were all between 14 and 18 years old and came from very troubled pasts. They had difficult family backgrounds. Most often, they and their families had criminal records, and most of the girls had spent time some of the most of their lives in youth detention centers, foster homes, on the streets, well, or worse. As I said, I worked a solo overnight shift and in most cases was the only man they'd ever met who was not going to hurt them, or again, worse. One of the things I instituted when I started there is something that I can't believe hadn't been part of the program from the beginning, many years before I arrived. You see, the overnight staff were required to do hourly room checks to make sure these poor girls were okay, asleep in bed, not upset, and not lying awake or crying. I thought that these poor kids had a right, well, not just a right, I thought it was critical to their well-being that I met with them individually when they first arrived in the program and explained to them what was involved with a room check. They needed to know that I would never come into their room, never walk past the threshold of the door that I might shine a small flashlight in to see if they were okay, but assure them that they were safe and that their space was not ever going to be invaded in the middle of the night. Doesn't it sound awful that no one ever thought of explaining that to them previously? Doesn't it sound even worse that these poor girls needed this kind of reassurance? In any event, we had a new arrival one evening, and I had my usual meeting with her. She was fine with what I had to say, had no questions or concerns, and left the office. She went into the living room where another resident, an old friend of hers, was watching TV. They knew each other from time they spent in the youth detention center together, and so they checked in with each other, not knowing I was within earshot. The new arrival asked the resident, Hey, what's up with that guy who was just talking with me? Now this older resident had an awful life. She'd been a victim of her family, her father, her uncle, her mother's boyfriend, in every awful way imaginable, or maybe unimaginable. But this is what she said to the new arrival. I remember her words exactly, and can still even hear the tone in her voice to this day, as she said, Oh, that's just Micah. He's like really nice, but he's not creepy. Yeah, maybe it sounds a bit strange just to hear the words, but the feelings she was expressing to the new resident were heartfelt. Thinking about it brings a tear to my eye to this day. So based on that little story, please don't be offended by what I'm going to say here. Remember the words of that former resident. And if for some reason I end up being creepy, please know I'm doing my best not to be. Okay, so onward and upward, let's get to the point. And this point will no doubt be from a male perspective. I can't help it. It just happens to be what I am. Not to say that those with another perspective won't understand or appreciate it, 
but it's undoubtedly coming from a specific point of view. Now, just as a reminder, remember, I'm not creepy and I have proof. So, let me ask you, have you ever met this amazing person that you just have a natural attraction to? You meet her and immediately you think, she's just great. Depending on your age, you may think, wow, I wish she were my friend, my girlfriend, my wife, my mother, my aunt, my sister. You just find yourself drawn to her, not in any sort of indecent nor improper way. You just like her and can tell she's special. You meet her and you're under her spell, one she doesn't even know she's casting. Now, today I'm talking about a specific person that we all know, and you probably know who I'm talking about. I remember the very first time I met her. It was June of 2015 at the Smithsonian Institution Air and Space Museum Udvarhazy Center at the program that's now called Innovations in Flight. I was standing between the B-29 and Ola Gay and the Boeing Dash 8 when along came Captain Jeff, Miami Rick, Fred Sampson, and of course, Dr. Steph. Jeff, who I'd met before, introduced me to everyone, saving Dr. Steph for last. That's when I came under her spell. I remember my first words to her exactly. I said, Dr. Steph, you're even more beautiful here than you are in person. Yeah, not the best first impression, I suppose, but you know me, I've always been really suave. She didn't know what to make of me. Come to think of it, she probably still doesn't. Although I think she now realizes that I'm not creepy. Dr. Steph, however, is an amazing person in so many ways. Yeah, she's beautiful. Sure, she's sweet. Naturally, she's kind, warm, and charming. But she's also a multi-engine instrument-rated commercial pilot. That's part of what brings her to the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. But she's still so much more than that. She's a skydiver, a marathon runner, a swimmer, basically a health and exercise nut. Dr. Steph is a world traveler and has been all over the world to run races, to visit foreign lands. And how many people do you know who've taken a shower at 30,000 feet? No, I don't mean sprayed by a shaken-up can of club soda. I mean takes a shower, soap and hot water, at 30,000 or more feet. Dr. Steph is a connoisseur of many things, but particularly beer. And not just any beer. She specializes in India Pale Ales. They're commonly known as IPAs. Yeah, acronyms are not just part of aviation. IPAs are a particular style of beer that was developed by accident in the late 18th century. On top of all that, Dr. Steph is, of course, a doctor. But again, not just any doctor, a physiatrist. She specializes in pain relief. I guess she studied that to enhance the natural effect she has on people, because if you're lucky enough to have Dr. Steph smile at you, any pain you might have just disappears. I could go on and on about Dr. Steph, and I'm not the only one who could. Captain Jeff once said, and I quote, Steph is so good at so much. I could spend most of the show talking about her. What can I say? Dr. Steph is amazing in many, many ways, and I'm glad she's my friend. So happy birthday, Dr. Steph. Thanks for not running away screaming when you first met me that first time at the Udvarhazy Center. More to the point, thanks for not punching me in the mouth back then, or since for that matter. I hope to see you again at the Udvarhazy Center next month at the Airplane Geeks 500 episode Decade of Podcasting Celebration. But most of all, Dr. Steph, thanks for your work with APG. And mostly, thanks for allowing me to call you my friend. Happy birthday, Dr. Steph. For the Airline Pilot Guy, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Very, very nice, Micah. Wow. That was fantastic. Well done, Micah. 
Wonderful Lovely. wordsmith. Great. Yeah, and, and speaks from the heart. Yes, and uh, we all agree with his sentiment uh, regarding Dr. Stuff. She's an amazing person. I, I, I've heard this term before, but that gave me goosies. I mean, that's really, that was very well done. Never heard anybody say goosies. I've heard goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps. Goosies. Or goose uh, something else people talk. Or... Well, now you heard it first on the airline panel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yes, very, uh, very uh, thoughtful, Micah, and uh, I'm sure that Dr. Steph, if she's listening right now, she'll really appreciate that. So, okay, um, let's see here. I guess we should move on uh, because we have a lot to cover in this week's intro. In fact, probably most of the show will be the intro. Um, but uh, let's start off with uh, Captain. Nick. Oh, you know what? I just uh, received a message from Dr. Steph, by the way, and she is indeed listening. She says, wow, thank you so much to Micah with a big grinning emoji. So excellent. So she is, she is listening and watching and uh, that's cool. Okay. Um, let's start off with uh, Captain Nick. Uh, you have been busy, even though you haven't been doing a lot of flying. Uh, but you have been busy, and tell us uh, what you've been up to, sir. Well, uh, I guess the uh, highlight of the week was uh, the meetup at uh, the RF Museum at uh, uh, Hendon. Uh, now, that's a fantastic location. Between the wars, uh, the airfield at Hendon used to host all the major air displays uh, in the UK uh, and all the uh, military squadrons, all the latest aircraft biplanes and the such in those days it used to aviate there and it was really to generate uh, uh, and re-energize the public's interest in the royal air force which was not a very old service um and um it, the history uh, has carried on until uh it's uh, there's no airfield there anymore but uh, they had this and they have um, um Put some new exhibits in and upgraded it, and uh, they are, you know, specialists aiming towards uh, the um, celebrations for the hundredth anniversary of the Royal Air Force. So it's a perfect time to go visit. I hadn't seen it for a while. Uh, we managed to get quite a few uh, of our listeners to come along as well. So I think there's a little audio which introduced most of them. Hi everybody, uh, this is uh, the old pilot and we are underneath uh, Sunderland, isn't this fantastic, in the RAF Museum at Hendon for the uh, May Museum meetup and uh, we've got about know, uh, eight or nine uh, people, uh, some of whom will be able to talk, others are stuffing their faces with cake. Uh, so I'm just going to go around, I'll ask everyone just to introduce themselves and say a quick hello to the APG show. Hello there, um, I'm uh, Tim Bailey, it's uh, my first uh, meet-up and very pleased to be here with uh, like-minded people to look at the aircraft today. Excellent. Uh, I'm Andy, I'm uh, based just near Duxford and I'm um, private pilot and I specialise in flying with my eyes shut. <laughs> so you, with all that, I can't bear it really, but there we go. So you log a lot of, a lot of night hours then? Oh yes, my <laughs> logbook's full of night hours. Here's a special guest, because uh, uh, this gentleman uh, uh, has a lot to do with one of the exhibits, so we're going to pick his brains when we get there. Hi, I'm Lofty. I'm uh, an aircraft engineer, uh, ex-Concord uh, engineering manager. Concord? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I've worked on it for most of its life and planned most of its life out. Wow, fantastic. I'm going to have to corner you for a plain tale before long. Hi, I'm Dave Willis. I've been to a few of these meetups now, and uh, it's my pleasure to show for Lofty to this one and hoping to meet some new people that are here for the first time and make them feel welcome. Thanks very much indeed. Can you make me feel welcome? I'll do my best. That's very kind. <laughs> Hello, my name is Louis Dupree. I'm from near Wimbledon, but also sometimes from South Africa. So I've spent winters in South Africa, and it's my second meetup. Who uh, do you fly when you head off down to South Africa? Uh, Emirates, mostly. Emirates, go to South Africa now. Yeah, yeah, they fly to South Africa. They fly 380 uh, to Dubai and then they fly 777 down to uh, South Africa. Very nice, slightly long way around, but sounds great. Hello, I'm Ivor. First time I've ever come here. Slightly disappointed. I did want to meet the big guns at Farnborough, but you slip this in and I didn't want you wandering around on your own looking disappointed and lonely so I've come down to see you. We need a quick that's what she said when uh, you say things like that. Surely not that's what she said. <laughs> Ivor where's your uh, where's your handler? Uh, Could... Well I've been on good behaviour so I've been let loose. I just think you managed to give him a slip. <laughs> Hello I'm Mike um Welcome local to here. I'm a long-time listener, um, probably in the te- well, not the teens, in the double figures at least. And uh, nice uh, local meet for me, so it's my first time out and uh, glad to meet everyone. Great to have you here. Hi there, Richard Adams from the Private Pilot from the Isle of Wight. And uh, it's my second meet-up after the brilliant Goodwood one. That was good, wasn't it? It was excellent, yeah. And we need to go flying sometime. We have, and I might better help you out with that. <laughs> Hi there, here's a new face. Hi, I'm Matt. Um down from Oxford, and I missed you guys at Pittsburgh by about 30 seconds. Oh no, you were in Pittsburgh? Yes, I managed to get out there on a work trip. Wow, what a pain that was, and what a shame. Okay, is that everyone? Uh, no, there's some idiot here with the camera. Uh, yes, Nev here, being a nuisance with the camera. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's great meet-up, and the weather's perfect for it, isn't it? So we're looking forward to it. Yeah, shame we're going to be indoors all day. All right, brilliant. We'll get on with our wander around the museum, and as people... Uh, tag on later, I'll introduce them. And uh, continuing, this is uh, Introductions Part 2. And who's the next person on the list who came late, but very welcome, it is young Barbara. Hello, Captain Nick. Yeah, sorry I arrived late. It's the traffic. Um, But it's great to be here at Museum at Hendon. Hendon. We have... Now, I'm very sorry to say at that point I had a little microphone problem. have to have a look at that. Um, but the next person I chatted to was Graham Haley, who has very recently started work at uh, Heathrow Airport as an air traffic controller. Hello, mate. There, you're having a good lunch. I certainly am, yeah. Um, what is that? Jack yeah. uh, potato <laughs> with tuna and cheese and a bit of salad. Very nice. Well, all I managed to get out of Graham, I'm afraid, was his lunch choice. But the next fine fellow I managed to get a chat to uh, is Pilot Pip from Plane Safety Podcast. When you come to the RF Museum at Hendon, and here's someone we all know and hate. Oh, Nick. Well, I love you and you know that. It took you long enough to invite me onto your show. You have to earn it, you know. You can't just appear willy-nilly. Well, I was champing at the bit. I couldn't wait. Well, you did a very good job as well. You're very kind. It must be all that training that Captain Jeff's given me. <laughs> I don't think I've missed anyone out, have I? Okay, I know a lorry is wandering around. Uh, 
Laurie Lowe. He uh, arrived just as we were coming into the restaurant. So because he was a bit late, he went off to see some exhibits. We might catch him later. And indeed, uh, we did. Questions. So this is Laurie, and uh, he arrived late. But we're going to say hello to him all the same. Hi, Laurie. Hi, how you doing? Where are you doing? Fine. Say hello to the APG audience. Hi, how you doing? My name's Laurie. Um, I'm from Finchley, and um, I'm actually a musician. I'm not a pilot, but uh, I hope to be... Well, I'm sorry, everybody, but at that point, the audio just about gave out, and Laurie got cut short. Uh, I'll try and do better next time. There you go. That's life on the APG show. Now, back to Jeff in the studio. Thank you very much, Nick. And yes, that is life on the APG show. <laughs> Unfortunately, it'll, it'll teach me for trying to do things on the uh, on the quick and not put earbuds in. So, ah, uh, yes. you know, so I was just relying on the audio working, and it had done previously. But I, I was a loose connection, or that mic I've got is uh, dying. Um, so my apologies for that. Luckily, I had uh, two microphones running at the same time, but the top ones on the H5 aren't particularly good. So. Uh, we lost some of that. But it was great to see everyone. I think there were 13 of us uh, in total. Had a lovely walk around. The staff were kind enough to uh, open up uh, the Phantom cockpit and let us all climb in and sit in, uh, something they don't normally do. Uh, and uh, it, it was just really nice. Time flew. Uh, and I was probably um, going on way too long to everyone about various uh, war stories from the days uh, past so my apologies for that you know it's just it's such a shame that you know we couldn't be there but you know it would have been nice to have like a video of the uh, entire meetup oh, would that and have been good it would have been really really oh wait a minute didn't nev say something about the fact that he was he had a camera did he happen to take some video footage uh, well, uh, yeah, as it turned out, of course, Nev uh, was doing a little bit of practice work because he's going to be doing a lot of video work for PTUK this summer of various air shows. So he had his beautiful 4K, um, uh, very expensive and very capable uh, video camera. And uh, he was doing some recording and presented us with a lovely little edited uh, um, video to uh, put on the website. That he did, and uh, if you'll just uh, refer to our show notes for the show, you will have or see a link to the YouTube channel. Of course, it's the YouTube channel that you can find the uh, APG show, the raw footage of us recording this audio. Um, and uh, you can check out the meetup that you just heard some audio from, and you can see, indeed, see Captain Nick sitting in that F-4 cockpit and uh, a few other airplanes as well, I believe. Yeah, we found the very basic jet trainer I trained in, the Jet Provost Mark III. <laughs> which, which yeah, kind of, it looked like, like you were a little memories. bit too large for that cockpit to me. <laughs> well, I think they, they had little plywood seats in there, which I oh. think were generally uh, set for uh, child height. So I, I had my head stuck out in the slipstream. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to imagine how you could be sitting in there with your helmet and everything else on and not poking your head through the uh, cockpit. Yeah, uh, I was a lot smaller in those days. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. we, also, we also got to see uh, Pilot Pip was uh, uh, sitting in the F4, I believe. And uh, that was yes, he was. Uh, he came along later because he just he just landed off a trip, and uh, he um, came more or less straight over from Heathrow, just with a uh, cardigan thrown over his uh, uh, uniform, and uh, joined us. So it was great to see Pip. It was really nice. 
Excellent. So again, please do check out that uh, wonderfully crafted video uh, by our good friend, Neville Bounds. And again, that's on the APG video channel on YouTube. All right. Anything else, uh, Captain Nick, before we move on to... I'm going to go next, and then we're going to save Dana for last, because I think he has a lot to tell us. No, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I never do. So, Nick, may I may I talk a little bit about uh, my last trip? Uh, I think you should. I think I've said quite enough. Okay. Uh, so, I just got back from a three-day trip, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I flew with this gentleman who was 26 or is 26 years old and he looks young for a 26 year old. So I'm sure they were making all kinds of jokes. Yeah. It looks like this guy brought his son to work. Uh, but, um, very nice chap as you say in the UK. Um, and so started talking about this and that, you know, where, where are you from the, you know, the standard stuff that you do when you're flying with someone you, uh, you have not flown with before. And uh, I did notice that um, he had what appeared to be like a, a hearing aid over his left ear and then come to find out that he actually had one on the other side as well. And he said, actually, he is almost completely 100 percent deaf. And those were cochlear or cochlear implants. And uh, he received those when he was about 14 or 15 years old. He was born uh, with this condition, just uh, a very, very bad hearing loss or lack of hearing at birth. And uh, a great story. Um, it's one of those stories that I wish that I had uh, uh, Captain Steve with me, uh, you know, the how I got here guy, uh, to interview him uh, because it was just an amazing story that uh, at a very young age, at eight months, his mother you know, all along was kind of suspecting that there was a, some kind of an issue. And uh, I don't know, had a hunch that perhaps he couldn't hear very well and found out that he had almost complete hearing loss. And uh, so he wanted to be, a you know, an airline pilot, but figured, you know, there's no way that he could be. And uh, so he ended up uh, through the encouragement of uh, several people made it, uh, found a, an uh, aviation medical examiner that understood uh, what was required for hearing and uh, getting a class one medical certificate. And he uh, ended up uh, getting one and getting a job flying airplanes uh, with uh, regional airlines. And then, of course, eventually a major, Acme, he's flying with us. And he has been with us for about a year or so. It was such a pleasure flying with him. What a great story. Always good to hear, you know, positive news like that because we've talked about several cases of um, uh, people with medical disabilities and overcoming them and uh, able to get what was required by the FAA to become a uh, professional pilot. So, um, yeah, uh, that was uh, pretty cool. His name was Josh or is Josh, and uh, perhaps we'll hear from him uh, more in the future. Uh, let's see, Captain Dana, I think that, uh, you might have something informative for the listeners. Yes. And I have to apologize to the, um, coffee fund cadre, because I promised that I would make more recordings as far as my, uh, recent, uh, transition to upgrade. Uh, however, because this last 
couple days has been so um, challenging. I, I basically came to the room after both days and passed out. So I'll start off with that. Um, I will make another recording, maybe even after the show today or, or at least uh, over the weekend. I finished my training, as uh, most of you uh, know, that I finished the training back about a week and a half ago. And because of that <clears throat> delay, they ended up having to take my trip from me. So I didn't begin my first uh, flight or line flying until uh, this past week, on Tuesday to be more specific. And uh, I thought that that would be okay. But as most of you know, I talked about my last uh, trip as a first officer and how beautiful the weather is was um that could not be the furthest from the truth this past week here in in the uh the southeast the weather has been absolutely miserable of course it figures that that's when i get to go out and start my first trip as a captain um and i uh, did that on tuesday i met the uh, the line check airman who has turned out to be a fantastic gentleman to fly with he is uh, very patient uh very helpful and very and encouraging. So, um, so far he's saying I'm doing a great job. I, I don't know who he's, who he is flying with. Can't be me, but, uh, he says I'm doing a great job, but it's, it's been, uh, my first, my first ever leg couldn't have flown to a, a more comfortable destination for me. Cause I've been there quite a bit was into the Windsor locks airport and when, in uh, and that's uh, known as Hartford Springfield airport. International Airport, BDL, for those who like the airline uh, airport code, uh, KBDL for those who don't know the domestic code here in the U.S. Um, and that was, uh, it was just one leg. That was not uh, not too eventful. It was a pretty easy event. Of course, uh, one thing that I've noticed uh, the last two days of flying is that I have, uh, well, 10 and a half years worth of experience in the airplane about that. <clears throat> um, and I felt like the first day I got into the airplane was the first time I've ever flown the airplane. Uh, I was completely lost. When we landed two and a half hours later in Hartford, <laughs> I think I still was in Atlanta, hanging on to the tail of the aircraft. Um, yeah, how did you make it, this thing go up again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had no clue. I just sat there like, oh, my God, what am I doing? <laughs> Who am I and how come I don't know this airplane? Because it was crazy. I just I was, like, I was looking. I was like, all right, I got all my flows down. And I actually have having no problem. A lot of people have a lot of issues transitioning 36 inches as far as doing all the flows and knowing where the switches are with the right hand versus all those years with the left hand. So I'm, I'm actually doing very well, well with that. I'm doing very well with the uh, the callouts, the procedures, et cetera, et cetera. But my brain uh, passed the, the aft lav in the back of the airplane by the aft air stairs somewhere around there because I'm I'm barely holding on. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so Tuesday was pretty uneventful. Um, Wednesday, all hell broke loose. I had four legs dealing with Atlanta weather, thunderstorms all over the place. And uh, we took off out of Bradley, and that morning I knew I was in trouble because as soon as we get to the airplane, they have two primary runways in, in, in Hartford. One, which I think I've taken off of in 10 and a half years once, 
It's real short. It's about 6,600 feet. And uh, the long runway, which is just touch here under 10,000 feet, which is a six and two four, um, which is the runway that we normally use. And here I am in an MD-90. Oh, and by the way, my first flight was an MD-90, and I love that because it's a great airplane. Um, easy to taxi. Throttles are responsive. The brakes are great. So fortunately, we're coming out of Hartford on a, in an MD-90 because we had to take off a runway 33, which is straight towards what I would call mountains, but people call hills. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I knew that did when that, that had got thrown at me, it was going to be an interesting day. So we flew down to Atlanta. And, of course, we were delayed due to the weather, and we ended up uh, running the entire day from airplane to airplane to airplane to airplane. And I say airplane, airplane, airplane three times because I've never swapped aircraft with a 41-minute turn scheduled turn time in an outstation. And we did in Baltimore, of course. So anyways, get into Atlanta, no problem. We take off out of Atlanta, and we get a call as soon as we take off. Don't uh, act me. Um, where are you guys going? Excuse me? What do you mean where are we going? Uh, you guys on XYZ departure? Cap, the other captain and I looked at each other. Yeah, we you know, we looked right down, make sure we're on that departure. Uh, we show you completely off course. This is climbing through about, uh, I don't know, eight 900 feet. And, of course, I've never heard that because we verified, trip double and triple verified, that we're on the right departure. And of course, I'm flying with a check get airmen so being extra vigilant is the word um and they say well where are you guys going well we're on the departure no no you're not we show you way off course turn left blah 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 and now we're in an md90 which has a gps i can under could understand it if we were in the md88 which has um does not have a gps for, for location it has um um <clears throat> Well, not I use anymore. It's uh, oh my god, help me out, Jeff. I'm having a brain fart all of a sudden. Uh, ARs, well, yeah. Well, no, they're they are no, IRUs. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm thinking yeah. ARs. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, uh, the IRU. So they have a little bit of map shift. They can have a little bit of map map shift. So that I can understand, but not a 90 with GPS. It knows exactly where we are. So here we are thinking that we're screwing something up and we're, you know, we start turning to a heading and air traffic control comes back. I've never heard this. The last time I actually heard something crazy out of Atlanta was my first time I flew with an FAA check airman in the jump seat when I was upgrading at my former carrier. When they told me to uh, climb, maintain, and cross a fix, climbing out of Atlanta on the downwind, on the climb out, which I had never heard in a million years in Atlanta either. You never hear that. They just tell you climb, maintain altitude. They said, well, climb, maintain above uh, such and such a fix, and here I am just taking off. So that's the last time. That's like, what, 12 years ago now? Um, so that's how that started. Well, the air traffic controller comes back and says, well, we had the wrong screen up. Sorry. Continue <laughs> with the departure. I'm thinking to myself, my God. I mean, this is, this is crazy talk. So we continue out, and uh, we head on to, uh, we're going to BWI, Baltimore. Um, we have uh, somebody from Baltimore that loves us, and we hear from him all the time, Hillel. So 
that was uh, my second pl- place I flew to. Going up to Baltimore, I have several notes on the flight plan. It says uh, one of the notes was that the Blue Angels were flying a air show over Annapolis. That triggered three runway changes, three different briefings, and of course, I'm thinking to myself, my God, this couldn't because the winds were favoring one runway, runway three three left, right down the runway, and they were twenty. And there was 18 knots gusting the 24 direct crosswind because they give, gave us 2.8 because of the Blue Angels at the air show. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. All right, so this is my second landing in the airplane. And here I am having to fly almost a max crosswind landing because it's convenient for the Blue Angels. So briefed it up three three different times because we got switched back and forth, back and forth. And, of course, every time we have trans proper way of doing is transferring controls. And by the time we got through the, the last beat briefing, I ended up being, know this aircraft like the back of my hand, have flown it forever. I got so far behind the aircraft and bringing it into Baltimore, I crossed, I, I was about 10 miles from the airport doing 250 knots, not configured at all. And he's looking at me and says, well, are you ever going to configure this airplane and land it? I was like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> so I got way behind the airplane, like if I had never flown the airplane before. That's why I said I, I just I, I <laughs> felt like completed it. Get the airplane on the ground, get to Baltimore. Of course, guess what? We're late again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hold on. I'm getting so choked up here. <laughs> so anyways, uh, continuing, and then I'm going to uh, close up this story here pretty quickly get to Baltimore, and they overboard the aircraft. Passengers are getting on. The flight attendants are in a bad mood. They're threatening to kick people off the aircraft. They're getting in fights with passengers, and they have too many people on the aircraft. Then we're taxiing out after we took a seven-minute delay and and uh, get the airplane configured, a short taxi out to runway 28 for takeoff. We landed in 3-3, by the way, 3-3 left. That was, uh, you know, an eventful obviously eventful occurrence. Um, so we uh, take off from runway 28, but we're taxiing out. And I, I don't know, Jeff, I have never gotten a call from air traffic control in all the years I've been flying saying, contact the company for this reason. We call, call the company. Yeah, we don't know who's sitting in C12D. Oh, and while you're at it, can you find out who's sitting in 12E? After they had started this whole process, the flight attendant goes back there and takes a picture of the person's boarding pass and couldn't figure out how to look at the picture on the phone for some reason. She took a video or something. She couldn't. She screwed it up. So here we are on a very short taxi out, trying to get next the other engine started. And, oh, by the way, they happen to mention we had a takeoff time, and we had to be here one to five minutes. So here we have operations trying to get two different names, the flight tent that didn't know what she was doing in the back, and trying to get the airplane prepped off the aircraft, uh, you know, take off the ground. So I get to Atlanta. Oh, so, I'm sorry. I stepped back. And we had an aircraft swap in Baltimore, 41 minute ground time. And we were delayed into Baltimore. So here I am trying to brief, trying to, trying to do everything. And I'm already way behind the eight ball trying to get everything done. And the delay wasn't on me, fortunately, but uh, it was just, it was just trying to wrap my head around all this with four legs in one day. And, of course, the weather was crappy everywhere, especially down here in the southeast. And then we fly in a mobile, and we're supposed to land on runway um, 33. 
that's what they were calling on the ATIS. And then uh, about 20 miles from the airport, well, runway 15 is available. You want that? Here we are, high, fast, and we threw everything out to get down to the runway. Of course, it was his leg at that time. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, oh, my God. You know, as a first officer, I wouldn't have been able to do this, no problem. Now, where I am sitting, I was like, all right, I'm still on the tail when he's landing the aircraft. I mean, I was just... It's it it's it's an awesome feeling. Um, to be honest, it's it's a great feeling to be captain. But I'll tell you what, I don't like being the new guy in the block anymore. I mean, it, it's it's a lot of stuff going on, and my my head, my brain is hurting because I have to think about so many things. And we do it, you know, four legs a day is a lot. It's a lot, especially as a new captain. It was just it, with with dealing with everything I had to deal with. Um, uh, two or three legs would have been would have been fantastic. Yesterday uh, was was just over the top for me. So I'm enjoying it. And when I went to uh, work, you know, the you know, getting on the bus, they said, "Hey, good good afternoon, Captain." And it used to be when I was a first officer, somebody would say that, yeah, whatever. So what? You know, they don't obviously know what the three or four stripes means. But now when they actually said it, it really hit home, and it was really a great feeling. That somebody said and looked at me and said, "Hi, Captain." So, yeah, and it turns out that they were actually talking to your co-pilot. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> just kidding. So, but uh, it, it's just it's it's been it's been a whirlwind. Now I'm on a 34-hour layover in Mobile, so I'm actually able to get my my uh, wrap my head around uh, some of some of what's happened and think about it and analyze it. And uh, I just don't understand why you cannot get light off, brake pressure checked, radar off, and flaps and slats retracted. I just cannot get, and when you're taxiing into the gate, those are the four things you need to look at. And for some reason, I can't get it through my thick skull to look at that stuff. So other than that, everything's going great. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying being a captain. I know I'm, uh, I'm having first world problems complaining about what a tough day. But let me tell you, it was actually, I mean, even as a first officer, experienced first officer, I was about flying yesterday, it would have been very challenging for me as an experienced first officer, let alone a brand new captain. So a lot of good learning went on. A lot of things I saw yesterday that uh, I have never seen as an airline pilot, um, but Fortunately, I had a really good, uh, a real good line check airman next to me that uh, really helped me out in a lot of ways. So, and not making the decisions for me, but helping guiding me in the right direction. So, a lot of good learning going on. So that's that's the positive side of things. Um, but I I didn't even get out, I never sleep in. I didn't get out of bed until twelve thirty today. I don't ever sleep in one thirty our so, time. <laughs> yeah, one thirty. One thirty. Yeah, I'm I'm one hour behind. So I just I am exhausted, and I still get a study today, so it should be fun. All right. So that's wow. that's that's my my long soliloquy, and I'm gonna stop talking now. So is, is the uh, line check airman's first name Mike? No, Mike. Ah, okay. He loves it too because I'm I say Mike. Mike. Um. So uh, we're getting a lot of good feedback from the uh, live chat room. Um, this one from uh, Nico. He says, the craziest things happen when you're flying with new captains. That's a scientific law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, true. it's so true. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've shared my first um, 
trip that I flew. Oh, you're you're still on the IOE though. Usually it happens after you've completed your IOE and you're on your first trip by yourself as the captain. You don't have another line check captain with you. Uh, that all the crazy stuff happens. So maybe you're just getting it all out of your system now, Dana. God, I hope so because that was just day two. <laughs> wow. And you know. Um, just thank the heavens it's not winter and you're not in the middle of snowstorms and uh, everything else. Actually, I'd rather that than yeah, what I too. dealt with yesterday. I'd rather deal with I, that I, than absolutely. all the thunderstorms and everything. Yeah. Absolutely would have. And, and the weather could not be any worse or more challenging than it's been the last two days. Well, it's, just, it's well, been bad. As uh, many are saying in the chat room, it's, uh, you know, you obviously it was a good test for you and you're going to look back at this and, and laugh about it in the future. Not so funny right now, but, uh, you no. know, in the future, you'll look back and think, wow, <laughs> what an experience. Yeah. That's that's exactly. I called my wife last night and I said exactly what I said. Wow. What have I gotten <laughs> myself into? This is crazy. <laughs> crazy. I mean, it was just it'll uh, get easier, though, as time goes on. Trust me. I, I promise. Promise. I really, really, it, it's got to get it. yesterday. I mean, I, I went from, I went from a, uh, uh, you know, best way you can put it from a, uh, from a, a calm sea to a typhoon or a hurricane. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was nasty. Hmm. It was very, very, very hard. So, but then at the end of the day, um, you know, as I said before, the line check airman said, I'm doing a great job. You see, and he actually, quote unquote, said, if it was legal for him to sign me off right now, he would. Well, that's a good sign. So he said to me. So that's, I think that's probably right. a good sign. Great compliment. Well done. Yeah. yeah. So forged by fire, Dana, forged by fire. Ooh, I hope it's only, it, it can only get better. I'm looking forward no, to no, that. You shouldn't have said that. Fired by forge. <laughs> yeah. That too. Captain to forge one. says you're fired. <laughs> it's Captain Forge, actually, the line check. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did jinx myself because there's a tropical depression down in the, uh, down in the Caribbean and I'm heading down tomorrow to Montego Bay and back. So I oh, think. Oh my. <laughs> oh my. Have fun. Yeah, that's heading up here for the weekend, Dana. It's supposed to be a huge uh, washer or whatever they call that, you know, a, a big tropical depression with all kinds of rain. Oh, yeah, of course. My, that's my wonderful luck. And, of course, I went out and bought a uh, a uh, floating vessel, and the, the the spring couldn't have been any worse this year. Yeah. And, of course, Memorial Day weekend, I had to really work around and get Memorial Day weekend off. And what's going to happen? It's going to rain the entire weekend. You're, you're going to enjoy it inside your house. <laughs> Pretty much. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's going to be a washout uh, this weekend. Wow, Dana. Well, I'm sure that we're going to hear more stories from you. and uh, But I hope that um, this day off will give you a chance to recharge the battery and then everything will be fine for the rest of the trip. Yeah, yeah, and good thing I had 34 hours in, in Mobile because I went and I had to, uh, I talked to Captain Bourbon for a couple couple of uh, hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, Captain Bourbon. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so anyways. Sweet. It was, it was, it's been fun. So thank you for the time. Good. And I'm glad. Yeah. To, uh, everybody oh, I, everybody loves hearing this kind of thing, you know, um, because, you know, not everybody can, for whatever reason, you know, get the job that we have that we love so much, and uh, it's kind of nice to be able to share these experiences with people. Yep, so, it sure it sure is, and, and certainly I'm I, I'm 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 saying all this with with kind of a, a smile on my face because you know all these issues are first world problems, not uh, 
not you know life changing problems. We you you know I'm learning obviously, um, but uh, I I and I say it and and I know most of you that don't listen or some of you that don't listen to the actual uh, uh, crew logs. That's one of the things I say in every single uh, say every single time is that you know I appreciate uh, the fact that I'm in this position. It's truly an honor, and I know that I'm living it for most of this community, and that's why uh, you know I'm still active and, and participate. So um, I can contribute in my own way to helping uh, people understand or, or appreciate what we do and uh, uh, help anybody that wants to uh, move forward in this business because it really is a great, great business to be involved in. So I appreciate the forum that we have and you guys and Dr. Steph. So it really, I think really helps uh, the people that listen to the show. Um, so I enjoy being a part of that really. And we enjoy you being a part of it as well. Thank you. We enjoy so, you enjoying um, it. <laughs> enjoy, 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 enjoy. Thank you. Thank I think you. we all agree. Thank we you. enjoy captain captain. So, um, let's see, you know, we strive for that, um, as high an accuracy rate as we can. Uh, but uh, we we don't always get there. And uh, last show, I have to say, embarrassingly, we did, well, mostly me, did uh, a poor job at accuracy. Uh, first of all, uh, all of us kind of thought, or I know I did, uh, that that windscreen crack uh, video that we saw on YouTube, um, this is from Adam. He said, guys, quick feedback about APG 324 about the crack windscreen. I'm pretty sure the video has been confirmed as being from a different flight than the one in China where the windscreen failed. So that's good to know. I mean, it's, it's not good to know that we screwed that up, but it's good to know that we did screw that up because we were all concerned that that should be the last thing that you would be concerned uh, about doing, taking a video of this windscreen that's eventually going to crack and then suck you know, half of you out of it, <laughs> out of that hole that it leaves. So, uh, that's uh, thank you very much, Adam, for clarifying that. Um, the two m mistakes that I made, first one's a little one. Uh, the wingspan I said was 100 on the, uh, on the mad dog was 108 feet, 10 inches. Uh, basically it's 108 feet is what we rounded off to. It's actually 107 feet, 10 inches. So just shy, just two inches shy of 108 feet for the wingspan on the uh, Mad Dog. So apologies for that bad info. And then the other thing that I said about the V, uh, the IAV uh, engine, IAE V2528 engine that we have on the MD-90, and the fact that uh, so many people have said that, uh, you know, the only place in the world that does the overhaul on that particular engine is in New Zealand, and I thought that's just a bunch of poppycock. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe I should relook into this, and uh, I did. And I found out that there are many, many places around the world that do uh, overhauls on the V2500 series engine, but the one that is most common, like 99.9% .9 of them, it's the A5 variation of the engine, which is the one that they use on the uh, Airbus series. Uh, the one that they happen to have uh, put on the MD-90 is the V2500 D5. So it's not the A5, it's the D5. And I think the D stands for Acme. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, you like that? Yeah, very good. So apparently, maybe that is true, that uh, the only place in the world that uh, does overhauls on these things is in New Zealand. and so. 
that you know raises an interesting question as far as I think the original plan was to continue flying these airplanes uh, at Acme until uh, you know until like the mid 2020s or so. But uh, I was talking to a, a mechanic on the my last trip, and he said that he had heard that because of the scarcity of places that do overhauls in these things, that they're just going to keep on running them until the engines basically run out of time, and then they're just going to park them. Full off. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, my neighbor uh, three houses down is the only other Acme person in in my hood that, that works for Acme. Um, and mm-hmm. He happens to be the maintenance manager at the TOC or Technical Operations Center where they do all the maintenance on the aircraft. Um, and that's where I got my information from directly from him. Um, yeah. We have a friend of the show also, I think he told me it was seven nineties right now that are, that are parked, um, that weren't supposed to be parked. And that's simply because we just don't have parts and, or that the engines are all the way down in New Zealand, you know, getting overhauled and it's something over $5 million uh, per engine from what I understand. Uh, it's crazy. It, it's just so the, the fleet plan yeah. has changed very rapidly. So maybe that means that uh, I'll be flying the uh, the venerable Boeing 7576 uh, sometime nearer in the future than I had anticipated. But we'll see. Yeah, also we'll, we're going to 500 mile stage lengths. Yeah, I did hear about yeah, that so. uh, from uh, operations. Yeah. But uh, in a way, that doesn't really bother me, except uh, if you have to fly more legs per day to get your block time yep. in, which is what it probably implies. Unless you're really super senior as I am, and then you just put in white slips for turnarounds. <laughs> well, but we'll see. Sorry, Dana. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> that's the reason why I think my stint as a captain may be short lived because yeah, friends- we're, we're just going to have to, it's a dynamic situation. We'll just have to see, you know, where, how it all shakes out, I guess. Have to wait and see. Okay, so I'm sure we made more mistakes than that, but those are the three that just really stuck out when I was doing my audio editing and, and doing some follow-up. So, uh, again, hopefully we, uh, we're getting everything straightened out as we go along on this wonderful APG journey. And unless you all have something else to talk about, I think it might be a good time for us to move on to the coffee fund, and then we can move on to news and feedback. Hey. What do you think? Let's go. All I've right. already talked too much. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The Coffee Fund is your way to support our show financially if you have the resources to do so. And we have a couple of different ways to do that. And uh, those who do contribute, uh, we call our Coffee Fund Cadre. And we, uh, the first one we'll talk about is the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically a, a PayPal donation page. And you can do a one-time donation or a recurring donation if you'd like. And since the last show, Mike Bain gave us a very generous one-time contribution. Hopefully not one-time. Thank you very much for that. We do appreciate it. Uh, the other way to do it, many of you, most of you uh, who contribute to our show are patrons of our show uh, via patreon.com. And uh, since the new sh- uh, the since the last show, we have a new producer, Ben Richards. 
Thank you, Ben, for becoming a patron of the Airline Pilot Guy show. And if you want to find out more about either of these methods, please head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website, AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee, where you can sign up to be part of that wonderful group, the Coffee Fun Cadre. Thanks again. Stand by for news. We'll start out with the first item in our news folder, and this is from the USA Today media outlet. The headline, Baboon Briefly Escapes Crate Roams Loose at San Antonio Airport in Texas. They go on, a baboon escaped from a crate at the San Antonio International Airport Monday afternoon. Airport officials confirmed the primate was on board American Airlines Flight 1014 from Chicago. While moving the crate from the plane's cargo hold and to the baggage area, the baboon got loose. That's L-O-O-S-E, by the way, for those of you who do not know how to spell loose. Viewer video captured the monkey moving from the American Airlines facilities and towards the United Airlines baggage area, where it was able to evade authorities for almost an hour. San Antonio police say the monkey was contained around 3.45 p.m. Crews were able to isolate the monkey isolate the monkey to a room at the airport. Most operations at San Antonio International have returned to normal, though the airport has announced that some flights may be delayed due to the wildlife issue. According to American Airlines, the baboon was flying to San Antonio to be placed at the Born Free Primate Sanctuary in LaSalle County, Texas. And yes, you can't just say Born Free. You have to actually sing it when you talk about the Born Free Primate Sanctuary in LaSalle. My dad's in that movie. Your dad is in Born Free? Yep. Was he part of the uh, flying in the movie? Yep. Wow. Son of in a gun. Of born, in the middle of Born Free, a VC-10 lands and brings uh, the heroine, uh, the lady, uh, in back into Nairobi. And that was the old man flying the airplane. Oh, how cool. He, you don't see much <laughs> of the approach. You see a little bit of the approach and him taxing it. You don't see him at all. But uh, it, what amused him was he uh, he landed and they, they'd had all the cameras there. And the director came up to him after he landed and said, uh, Look, uh, that all happened a bit quick. Any chance you could go out and do it again, but slower? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So he had no idea that he was being filmed when he came in. Uh, I think I think he knew. Yeah, oh, I think okay. He knew, but, okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, cool. that's cool. That's very uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, the article goes on. In a written statement, the airline uh, said that they were assisting in the effort along with the San Antonio Zoo. And officials from the zoo are now uh, on site to ensure safety and well-being as he continues his journey to his new home at the Primate Sanctuary. Captain Nick, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, I, I'd just like to uh, <laughs> I'd just like to boost our accuracy slightly. Uh, this wasn't a baboon. It was a Arisus macaque monkey named Dawkins. 
uh, and was a research animal from Brown University on his way to a wildlife sanctuary to retire. I wonder what kind of research they did on him. That piece of information was from CBS News transportation correspondent Chris Van Cleve. So thank you for that, Chris, and uh, correcting our previous statement. It wasn't a baboon at all. In fact, we've got a picture of Dawkins there trying to skulk away underneath uh, a truck. Oh, Dawkins, come on. Yeah, what are we going to do with you? You know what? Um... That wasn't our mistake, Nick. It was the USA Today. So, ah, uh, yeah, but we promoted it. Oh, we still get charged with it then. <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I'm afraid that still counts on the negative side. Oh well, but oh. we we've recovered now. We've yeah, recovered. we have. Yeah, thank you very We're much. Back about fifty percent. Yeah. Well. So you know, you probably looked at the picture of uh, Dawkins and said, "Wait a minute, that's not a baboon. I know my monkeys." Uh, exactly right. Yeah, I'm a monkey expert. Yeah, <laughs> I do a lot of monkeying around. <laughs> yeah, do. I was gonna say you, you you're a monkey. <laughs> yeah, I am for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. we all are. I think. Uh, yeah. Actually, we're not. We're apes, aren't we? Rather. Well, we're all primates. Maybe. Yeah, yeah we're all we're primates. Right. Whatever. Okay. Moving on. Uh, this might uh, Nick. You might be able to help us with this one. Uh, the second one in the news folder. Um, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this airline name. Onur. Onur. Is that how you do that? I've never heard of this. Onur Air, no, I haven't either. No. Airbus A three thirty two hundred on behalf and in colors of Saudi Arabian Airlines. Uh, registration number Tango Charlie Oscar Charlie Hotel, performing flight thirty eight eighteen. That Saudi uh, Saudi Arabian Airlines flight thirty eight eighteen from Medina in Saudi Arabia to Dhaka. Bangladesh, is that the way you pronounce it? Dhaka. Dhaka, okay, thank you. Was en route at flight level 370, about 200 nautical miles northeast of Medina, when the crew decided to turn around and divert to Jeddah. The aircraft went around from about 1,000 feet MSL on the first approach due to an unsafe gear indication, entered a hold for about one hour while working with the checklists, performed a low approach to Jeddah, and subsequently positioned for a full-stop landing without the nose gear, Aircraft landed on Jeddah's runway 34 right about four and a half hours after departing from Benina and skipped on main gear and aircraft nose, producing sparks to a halt on the runway. The aircraft was evacuated. No injuries are being reported. This is according to the Aviation Herald at the time. And the aircraft sustained substantial damage. And then there's a couple of photos in here that show all the sparks uh, being thrown out from the uh, nose uh, forward f- fuselage area of the airplane when it was skidding down the runway. Although um, I did find another news article that said that, and this is according to the Saudi uh, Gazette, uh, that 141 passengers and 10 crew members on board the aircraft proceeded to an emergency exit using the airplane slides. So in other words, when they were evac- they did evacuate and they reported that 52 passengers were treated by the airport medical teams and four were transported to a nearby health center. One passenger in particular suffered from multiple fractures. So that kind of is a little bit different than the statement uh, that no injuries were. Well, it says no injuries were being reported. So maybe they did have some injuries there. But so obviously they were flying along. They have some kind of a hydraulic problem. I don't know. Would you get an actual enunciation that there's something wrong with your nose wheel or would it be something to do with your hydraulic system or or do we know? 
Uh, I, I wish I had more details. Um, th there are multiple indicators to show that uh, your, your gear are down and locked. So you've got a double position indicators and you've got two um, LCGRUs, uh, two landing gear uh, computers, uh, and they swap around. Every time you cycle the gear, they swap. So the usual actions, if you get an unsafe gear indication, um, is to uh, recycle the gear and that swaps the... Uh, LCGRU around, uh, you use the other one. Um, but the the huge majority of these are just indication problems because uh, you've got uh, proximity sensors that indicate when the gear is fully down unlocked. And you only need uh, one, and you've got double indicators for each gear. So you've got you've got redundancy, lots of backup. You only need one indicator to show the, the gear is down for you to know it's safe. Um, it's pretty rare not to get gear down the only other one i uh heard of is uh from an airline not dissimilar to acme red that uh had a mechanical failure of part of the gear assembly uh which jammed one of the main gear uh, up and they landed with uh, one main gear and nose gear um and that was a 340 now um so almost unheard of to have an undercarriage problem with this. If your main gear uh, doesn't come down on the uh, hydraulic uh, system, then there is a gravity-lowering system, which uh, you know is pretty much foolproof. So that fails as well, then it probably means to me that there must have been something relatively serious with that, the mechanics of that nose gear. Perhaps uh, the doors failed or jammed, something to hold it up uh, and prevent it from coming down. Um, pretty rare. Um, but uh, And normally with just a nose gear missing, uh, it's a fairly safe landing. The aircraft's going to be in an odd attitude, obviously, because you're like missing four or four or five feet of... Uh, uh, gear there, and you're obviously going to scrape the aircraft skin, the nose along the ground. But uh, it's a, a lot safer than landing without a main gear, uh, where the aircraft will tip over on side, and you'll obviously get that wing and the engine scraping on the ground, which is not good at all. So um, this is, you know, if you're going to get a gear stuck up, this is the one to have the the, the nose gear stuck up. Um, of course, when it comes to the evacuation. Uh, with the nose right down on the ground, the tail's going to be way up in the air. So if possible, you need to avoid using the uh, the rear doors because instead of being in the, air, the aircraft fuselage level, the tail is now jacked up in the air. And uh, that slide is going to be close to vertical. So uh, you, you can deploy it and take a look at it, but the advice is unless... Uh, it's absolutely essential you evacuate from the other doors. And I don't know whether uh, the injured passengers uh, went out of the rear door. Um, yeah, it's not ideal when that happens. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, the aircraft I would expect, um, the one we had with a main gear, uh, it was back flying again within a few weeks. They, they patched it up and got it going again. There was no major damage. But then again, that pilot was uh, that at that time the uh, British uh, aerobatics champion, fine fellow, young Tim. He was a marvellous pilot, and he did a grand job landing it. Um, so uh, if this guy uh, landed it reasonably well, I would hope it would be back in the air pretty quickly. I, in, go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things, that I'm, as I'm listening to, to Nick talk, and it, it, it's really it, – 
kind of amazing to me now that I'm thinking in completely different terms, like which door you'd go out and uh, uh, obviously the, f- the front doors in this case would be uh, obviously the, the better choice. I would imagine if anybody went off that out of the back doors that the injuries would be substantial because that tail would be extremely high up in the air. The slides would not reach the ground. I would imagine because they're designed, you know, for the airplane to be on, on its mains or or even less. Uh, so that it probably added another six, seven, eight feet in in height. So that would be, uh, you know, pretty close to a twenty foot drop. I would imagine. So um, I think you know, if anybody went out the back, the 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 injuries would be substantial, a lot more than just a couple broken bones, which can just happen coming down the slide. In any case, even off our, you know, even off our aircraft, which is pretty close to the ground. Well, speaking so, of our yeah. aircraft and uh, emergency evacuations, um, well, it was a couple of weeks ago, and um, I haven't really heard much about this incident. It was at Acme, an MD ninety landing in Denver. After landing, uh, shortly after landing, they were taxiing in, and a bunch of uh, smoke started entering into the uh, cabin through the air conditioning system, and uh, they stopped the airplane and. Uh, uh, initiated initiated an evacuation and uh, i don't know if you all saw any of these pictures but um, they had a bunch of folks that went out the uh, over wing exits and they're just standing on the wing um, and, and like i don't know it must be 20 30 on the right wing that i could see and they were probably doing the same thing on the other side and you could hear there's some uh, video of it and you can hear uh, some people uh, communicating the fact that they don't know how to get down, like and the, and then someone was saying, well, you know, there there was the slide didn't um, deploy uh, for us to get down from the wing, and I'm thinking, were they not? <laughs> did they not pick up the uh, safety uh, brochure that shows you uh, what you should do if you actually leave the airplane through the overwing exits on a Mad Dog? There are no, there are no. Um, slides you slide down the back of the wing and down the flaps to the ground uh but apparently they weren't paying attention to the briefing <laughs> well, well i mean think of it jeff <laughs> think of it look at the, the the videos and photos of that uh, unfortunate incident on south southwest yeah with the, and the people with the, the masks not over i mean let's use common sense number one it you get to cover your mouth and nose right so you can breathe but you know people people just take safety for granted and that's one of the biggest things as a captain that we are really responsible for being the 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 stop because everybody expects has an expectation when they get on an aircraft that when they get on the aircraft they're going to get to their destination in 100 percent condition because we do it so well all the time that that's the expectation it's like if you go to a doctor's office and you go in for surgery you go in and, and they tell you, well, there's a 20% chance that this could happen. And you go in and even with that, knowing that fact, you fully expect to come out of a surgery much better, right? And, and not end up, uh, you know, six feet under or whatever else. So what we do as, as captains is we manage that risk and people have become so accustomed and so used to everything being so perfect. I, I would venture to guess even the highest mileage flyers probably have never picked up that card. Yeah. Or somebody that's brand new, that's never been on an airplane, they may have looked at the card, 
but I would say 99% of the flying population probably has never even looked at that card. Maybe 98. Come on, give them a break. 98. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a high percentage. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's seriously, I mean, yeah, it, I it's, 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 it's not going to happen if, to me, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, because we know, right. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not going to happen to me because, well, you know, as, as a person, you know, that's just human nature. So, I, I can see where those people were standing on the wing saying, well, what do I do now? Well, if you had done your due diligence, which is what the FAA has, has the flight attendants do this safety presentation. It's not for their good health. <laughs> it's for a reason. People just don't pay attention. Yeah, sadly. The other interesting thing about that video, uh, and again, I don't know if you guys caught it, but uh, they were uh, kind of focusing on uh, one of the, uh, I think it was the rear uh, or right. Well, which one could, what did that have been? Um, anyway, one of the doors with the slides, uh, deployed and people were throwing, uh, this one guy threw his rollerboard down the slide. And then they had a couple of passengers at the bottom of the slide, assisting passengers as, as they came down the slide. But when they saw this suitcase come down, <laughs> they took the thing and he, the guy just flings it like 30 feet <laughs> on the, on the, uh, asphalt, uh, Obviously, you know, because he was a little frustrated that somebody decided not only decided to take their luggage with them, which they're not supposed to do, but they threw it down the slide, which could have, you know, torn up the slide and made it, you know, ineffective for everyone behind them. So I don't know. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's that that is that's the sort of thing I'm afraid I would do. Oh, yeah, it was very you could just tell it was like, are you kidding me? And he just tosses it. And uh, the guy goes walking. The guy that comes down after uh, his suitcase uh, goes walking off to retrieve his bag. You know, probably didn't even understand, you know, why the guy did that. Anyway, uh, but getting back to the first part, they're en route at flight level 370 back to this Airbus 330-200. They're at flight level 370. And they obviously something happened to indicate that something is wrong. And then they start talking about diverting at that point. You know, all the things that you talked about, Nick, were, were you know, indications that you get uh, for when, when you're extending the gear or raising the gear, you know, the, the landing and, and takeoff operations. Um, what would what would have happened at flight level 370 to indicate to them that there's something there's a problem? Or do you think maybe something happened? when they initially take, took off and they discontinued to climb up to well, 37? It could be a green hydraulic failure. That's yeah. the hydraulic system that uh, operates the main gear. Okay. And it is the primary hydraulic system. If they had that go on them, that may have initiated the diversion because it's the primary hydraulic system. Okay. You don't really want to carry on without it. And, of course, uh, because that is the one that lowers the gear, the only way of lowering the gear then is using the high, the um, gravity system. And if for some reason the gravity system failed, you're out of options then. Uh, you've no, there's no there's no a tertiary. There's only a primary and a secondary. So, uh, yeah, that, okay. that may have been it. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing here. Okay. I just I was curious and never flown the airplane, so yeah. I didn't know what uh, might have happened there. Okay, um, moving on to uh, item C in the news: HR four, the House uh, resolution. I think that's what that stands for. Uh, we've talked about the fact that the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018 had been making progress and uh, was introduced and passed by the House of Representatives here in the U.S. And now it's awaiting uh, the passage via the Senate. And I was reading something 
no, I was actually flying with somebody that mentioned to me, yeah, can you believe that uh, in that bill they have this uh, authorization for commercial cargo aircraft to be piloted by a single pilot? And I said, huh? <laughs> no, I didn't hear that. And actually, I pulled up the uh, the, the verbiage here of the uh, of the bill. The in this bill sponsored by Representative Schuster, uh, Bill Schuster, uh, there is a provision in Section 744. The FAA, in consult in consultation with NASA and other relevant agencies, shall establish a research and development program. So they're not actually authorizing single po- single operation of commercial cargo aircraft. They have established a research and development program in support of single piloted air cargo aircraft assisted with remote piloting and computer piloting and uh, many uh, safety related organizations, including uh, the airline pilots association international have uh, spotted this and said, uh, excuse me, wait a minute. What are you talking about here? That's, we don't want that. That's not something that we should have in the bill. Uh, but apparently um, it, it was put in there and um, in the present version of the bill, uh, is still there, and uh, they they have objected vociferously uh, about it. And uh, did you guys know anything about this? No, nope. I first time I'm hearing anything on it. So I'm wondering if uh, they're going to put some pressure on the senators to remove this part, this 744 section 744. Uh, but uh, if this ever happens, where we have single pilots operating commercial airliners. Uh, it, you know, the only way that it will happen, in my opinion, it will be for commercial cargo uh, aircraft. But even then, you know, people say, well, you know, there's not passengers on board. Yeah, but uh, if you if a, if a cargo aircraft crashes into a neighborhood or a building or whatever, uh, it's going to involve more than just the pilots. Uh, oh, being... uh, yeah. Uh, as in the Belmamia, we uh, had a plane tail a little while ago. Yeah, they, they killed 50 on the ground. Right, and then yeah. that 747 in uh, somewhere in Russia last year um, that plowed into a neighborhood uh, when they were attempting a go around or something. So I mean, it's yeah. it happens. So, anywho, hopefully uh, that that will be removed from the bill before it passes the uh, Senate and gets uh, handed to the president to become law. Um, an update on the. Cubana, actually, what was the name of the airline that actually uh, operated it? Um, they were from Global Air, I think, uh, yeah, from Mexico. Uh, Mexican civil aviation authorities are conducting a special inspection of the charter operator at the center of the May 18th accident in Havana and have suspended the company's operation until further notice. The third such action in eight years against that carrier the Directorate General of Civil Aeronautics, the DGAC, said it would conduct an extraordinary ver- uh, verification of Mexico City-based global aerialinus Damoj, D-A-M-O-J-H, or Global Air, and ground the carrier Demoje. during a check. Hmm? It's pronounced like an H. Demoje. Demoje. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's see, one of their... Uh, Boeing 737-200 models was flying for Cubana de Aviación when it went down shortly after departing Jose Marti International Airport in Havana last week. So just thought we'd uh, update 
the progress of that investigation and the fact that they have uh, suspended their their uh, operating certificate until further notice. So that could mean, just like that incident, um, the Canadian airline that took off out of uh, Saskatchewan, I forgot what the airplane uh, airport name was, but uh, they suspect that there were uh, no de-icing procedures accomplished on the airplane, and they took off anyway and crashed, and then they kind of did the same thing with them, said, uh, we're suspending their certificate because obviously they're finding some significant safety lapses. I'm okay. trying to work out how they're still searching for the flight data recorder. I mean, it's not like the debris was spread over miles or was sunk into an ocean. Yeah. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's, it should be just sitting there. Well, I, I think I think there's a simple answer to that one. They're it wasn't on the airplane. They're on the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that oh, yeah, might be the simple answer. You have to have both a, a cockpit <laughs> voice recorder and a flight data recorder? I thought it was either or. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll hear more about that as the investigation continues. Another uh, crash. Uh, this uh, private jet crashed off the end of the runway of the International Airport in Honduras's capital on Tuesday. This is the, uh, let's see, um, no, Mike Hotel. Let's see, what is the uh, the uh, identifier here? I think I have it open in one of my browsers. Let me take a look here uh, just to make sure we get this right. Uh, Mike Hotel Tango Golf, uh, also the three-letter identifier, TGU, uh, it's Tegucigalpa Tancantin, Tancantin Airport in Honduras. I think that's correct. And uh, anyway, it was a, uh, a uh, Gulfstream uh, Global 200, I believe, flying from Austin, Texas to Tegucigalpa. And uh, on Tuesday morning, and they landed on runway two and kept on going, even though they reached the end of the runway, went off the end of the runway, uh, a runway excursion. And we've heard of crashes and problems with this runway before in the past. Uh, and it's not the first time an airplane has continued off. And then, of course, you reach the point where there is no more runway or earth, and it just drops down off, a, I think, a 50-foot cliff or something. And yeah, into a ravine wow. gully. Uh, picture shows the uh, uh, Gulfstream jet uh, basically broken in half, right about where the where the wing box is. And miraculously, uh, folks responded immediately and got the six occupants. It, it varies depending on the news story. Some say six, some t- say nine, but they got all of the people off of the airplane alive, and uh, most of them. Just had maybe some scratches and bruises. Uh, there, there may be one passenger with more serious injuries taken to the hospital there in uh, Tegucigalpa. But um, wow, uh, what an accident! And and for for people that don't have never heard of this airport, it's actually one of the most dangerous airports in the entire world. Um, it's a very short runway, and it has a mountain quite literally at the end of the runway the other end of the runway but i think they actually uh they actually did i think remove most of that mountain that was like on very short final uh and actually extended the runway a little bit but it's still a very treacherous you're right dana very very treacherous airport to land at and it's it's for those folks listening to the show if you ever want to go to youtube go to youtube and put type in the guzgalpa to Canton, um, Honduras, uh, and look at some of the videos of some of these aircraft that, that have gone. I mean, it's 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 crazy to watch 
uh, these aircraft, 757s, 737s. Yeah. There's I mean, an American coming. Airlines 75 that comes in, and you, I looked at that one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's I mean, crazy. We're talking feet. <laughs> yeah. Feet. Mere feet from from the top of, you I, know, hitting, hitting the mountain. I, I mean, think a lot of those uh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dana. No, no, it's that's it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. A lot of those videos, though, uh, were uh, from the days before they actually took away some of the uh, some of that hill at the at the short final of uh, the end of runway or the beginning portion of runway two, the end of twenty. But still, it's not a fun. Pl- it does not look like one of those places that I want to have a pin in my map. No, nope. All right, I never want to go there. No, I don't either. Let everybody else have the fun, Dana. Right absolutely no thank you yeah i mean it's it's like bringing flying the 737 to key west really yeah that runway is what uh 5, 000, i think 4,500 feet long no way i've sat i've sat in the jump seat watched the whole thing going into key west and that is just absolutely nuts it's it's a really short runway so you know there's some challenging airports that that, uh, are flown to by commercial airliners and and uh it's 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 just dangerous and i'm very happy to hear that they've taken down a good part of that mountain to lose kappa yep me too all right. Uh, and then finally, uh, I threw this in at the last minute. Uh, just recently, a U.S. Air Force T-38C Talon II crashes near Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi. The crew ejected and uh, they were uh, they didn't I, they may have sustained some minor injuries. They did take them to a hospital for uh, to, to evaluate just to make sure they were OK. But uh, not much to the story. But uh, the reason why it was important to me is because I uh, went through pilot training uh, and I was an instructor at this uh, base and uh, not sure what kind of maneuvers they were doing, if they were doing pattern work or if they were up in one of the areas or whatever. But uh, apparently something went wrong and uh, they uh, both ejected safely from the uh, T-38. So I guess uh, Martin Baker is probably going to uh, give the uh, put out a couple more ties. I reckon so. Now, the Black Knights, they say, the 49th Fighter Training Squadron, the Black Knights, would would that be uh, the name of an actual squadron that is now a training squadron? Because when I was uh, flying Phantoms way up north, uh, there was a Phantom unit on Iceland called the Black Knights. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I was reading this article too, Nick, and I was, and a lot of this I did not recognize because a lot has changed since the uh, 1980s. Mm. Um, but uh, I, apparently they have like a fighter lead-in school and they also have advanced um, undergraduate pilot training uh, going on at the same time. The, the uh, squadron that I was in when I was a student and flew the T-38 was the uh, 50th which apparently is still there, uh, the 50th. Uh, I guess they're calling it now the a Special snakes. Yeah, I don't remember that, but maybe it's because I'm just old and I don't remember things anymore. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the other thing, the uh, the fly, fighter lead-in, or what are they calling it here, the advanced um, fighter uh, training, where is it? I'm trying to find it in the article. Uh, the 49th Fighter Training Squadron was not there when I was there. Uh, they, they did that at a separate... Location like Luke Air Force Base or something in the Arizona desert, but uh, 
anyway, pretty cool. Well, not cool, actually. Um, not so great that at least they uh, successfully ejected. And, you know, the, the seat apparently did its job and the parachutes worked and they are still alive, which is good. Unfortunately, one of the T-38Cs are uh, now no longer with us. Oh, they're Channel Penny, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Pretty cheap. Yeah. Actually, this is the model that it looks nothing. I've seen the um, instrument panel, and it looks nothing like it looked when I flew it. They've uh, completely revamped. The, the, that's why they're calling it a T-38C model. Where they, I think they have actually boosted the thrust of the engines a bit, and like that, like it really needed that. And uh, they have uh, put in glass uh, instrumentation and. Uh, RNAV, you know, like FMCs and all kinds of, uh, I think even HUDs and stuff in it. So much, yeah. much a different airplane than when I flew it. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's it for the news folder. And now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with uh, this piece of feedback sent in by Orson, and he writes. First, he sends a a uh, image, an image from his phone, apparently. Yeah, and he says, "So I was waiting at the railway station for the other half today, and looked on my phone to see where she was, and guess where I discovered I was." And then, of course, he sends the screenshot from his telephone. And, uh, wow, it's kind, of, uh, it's, it's kind of disturbing, actually. He, mm. His current location was in Dana's Passage. That's huh? a worry. That's a worry. Yeah, wait. This that, that is. That's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's unfortunate. That, that does remind me, though, of the two pictures I've sent you, Jeff. Yes. Of me in Jeffrey's Passage. <laughs> I don't. Where did you? When did you send those? Well, it would have been a couple of years ago, around Farnborough time. Uh, there is a little alleyway in Guildford that joins the High Street onto North Street, and it's called Jeffrey's Passage. And twice, I have uh, tweeted and sent pictures of me pointing at the sign, going, "Look, here I am in Jeffrey's." <laughs> That's right. I remember now. And Liz uh, is wondering if it was the uh, front or back passage, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I responded. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, enough of that. Family show, folks. Family yeah. show. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Thank you, Orson, I, I, for I, that. I, I yeah. wasn't nauseous until about now. <laughs> no, you were yeah. nauseated. He hasn't told yeah. us what it was like in Dana's passage. I, I don't... Mm. No, don't need to know. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Flying Kiwi, our friend Down Under. We have several of our uh, our uh, folks are our friends from Down Under. Um, he. This is kind of a random thought from uh, Lucas. If you could bottle the smell of burnt Jet A1, I'd go for that. Maybe you could do a signature series, Jet A1 burnt through different engines, question mark. Um, he's thinking, how about the burnt jet fuel smell from a mad dog? We could call that essence of mad dog. Um, let's see. Another idea that he has is phantom pheromone. Pheromone. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. The Starlifter I flew for the U.S. Air Force. Starlifter stink. 
that's actually pretty appropriate. Oh, I don't need so much of that. <laughs> Probably not. And uh, this one, um, Nick, you might be familiar with, Hornet Honker. Onk, onk. That's <laughs> very unfair. The Hornet is not a honker. It smells wonderful. It's a beautiful smell. And a lovely mixture of electronics and aviation fuel. <laughs> He says, I think it would fly off the shelf. Pun intended, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you, Lucas, for that uh, random thoughts from the Flying Kiwi. We should get a new sound clip for that, too, <laughs> while we're at it. Okay. Uh, Sean uh, writes in. In fact, I think we were trying to cover this on, their, on the last show, but we didn't get to it. Uh, he says, some idiots, a.k.a. the media, think they've solved MH370 without any evidence, but hey, they're not concerned about accuracy. And we're not here either, actually. Um, and then he sends a link to this article, uh, MH370 experts, air quotes, think they've finally solved the mystery of the doomed Malaysia Airlines flight. And I'm thinking, really? Wow. What kind of big breakthrough? What evidence do they have now? Um, apparently, they don't really have any, um, but uh, I'll start reading from this uh, article. All but one of the 239 people on the doomed Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 had probably been unconscious, incapacitated by the sudden depressurization of the Boeing 777, and had no way of knowing they were on an hours-long, meandering path to their deaths. Along that path, a panel of aviation experts said Sunday was a brief but telling detour near Penang, Malaysia, the home of Captain Zahari Ahmad. I'm just going to wave the first flag. Okay, uh, go ahead. Yes, sir. Okay. If you uh, if all the passengers are in a depressurized airplane, they're only going to be alive for 20 minutes because that's the only length of time the oxygen is going to last. And uh, after 20 minutes, their oxygen runs out, they all die. So they would have been dead well before they went on their hours-long meandering path so they wouldn't have incurred their death at the end of that path the depreciation would have done it there you go yeah i mean the pain stewart uh, remember that famous golfer his yep. aircraft uh, yeah yeah absolutely all, yeah they were they were long gone before before that airplane yep. ever and the uh helios uh 737 similar one where uh, they climbed out without putting the pressurization on got to cruise altitude and uh, they all died and the aircraft carried on with everyone dead except one cabin crew member who got portable oxygen and managed to fight his way into the flight deck. That would be a good plain tale, that one. That would be a great one, yeah. That's awesome. Well, anyway, on two occasions, we're back to the article, uh, whoever was in control of the plane and was probably the only one awake tipped the craft to the left. The experts, experts believed Zahari, the plane's pilot, was taking a final look. Okay, right. That's the chilling theory that the team of analysts assembled by Australia's 60 Minutes have posited about the final hours of MH370. They suspect that the plane's 2014 dif uh, disappearance and apparent crash were a suicide by the 53-year-old Zahari and a premeditated act of mass murder. But first, the expert said that he believed that he depressurized the plane, knocking out everyone aboard who wasn't wearing an oxygen mask, as Captain Nick just said. That would explain the silence from the plane as it veered wildly off course. No mayday from the craft's radio. No final goodbye texts. No attempted emergency calls that failed to connect. I'm not sure what kind of connectivity was on board the Malaysia 370 flight at that time. I'm not sure that anybody alive would be able to send any text messages. They probably didn't have Wi-Fi. I'm pretty sure they did not. 
And what kind no, of emergency call would you make out in the middle of the ocean? You know, you, if you don't you have, have, have service. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it, it did go over land and then coast out from Malaysia. So right. I, I guess, but the, your, your phone won't connect to the ground. No. And uh, if, if the crew were insistent on not making a call, then no one's going to hear. That's right. Anyway, ter- come to find out that uh, the guy that's kind of proposing this idea and basically saying, I'm 100% sure that this is what happened. Really? And uh, really no evidence to support it is uh, somebody who is an author of a book. Yeah, well, that'll be the reason. Won't it? Yeah. So I tell you what's so sad about this, Jeff, is that the family of this uh, dead pilot uh, are having um, this pressure put on them uh, and suggesting that he was the perpetrator of a, a mass murder. I think without any evidence, any real evidence whatsoever, that is an appalling assumption to make. It is. It really I is. Think, I think this guy is just profiteering. I think yeah, he, is, he is sacrificing the, sacrificing the good name of this person's family, and, and there is no way in this world uh, until, if ever, this you know the the flight data recorder or, or parts of the airplane are, are recovered, and even even if they find parts, probably we'll never really know. So this guy is just taking this story and running with it at the expense of of of, of an entire family. There's no yep. way in this world he could know. Who's to say it wasn't wasn't depressurization, or maybe you know, God forbid, it was some type of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning that spread through the the, the in, in caught you know very slowly. Uh, cause everybody to pass out. I mean, you, you just don't know. I mean, and until yep. we actually find the actual wreckage, the site, and the the voice recorder and uh, flight data recorders, we're not going to know. And it's it's uh, I don't know. It's self serving to do this kind of thing. It really is. It's horrible. Well, it's very easy to point the finger at somebody that's not there to defend themselves. Right. Absolutely. And somebody that's not wasn't even involved with this at all. Yeah, I mean, it'd be be like saying, ah, you know, this is just. I'm sorry, I, it, it's very yeah. irritating to me. Now, something I learned from this article, if it's actually correct, you know, who knows? Um, the uh, company Ocean Infinity uh, was uh, tasked with uh, kind of making the last effort to try to find the uh, uh, the, the intact triple seven. Um, oh, that was another thing that I was reading here that they said that uh, he surmised that it was a controlled landing uh, ditching into the water because of marks on the flapperon, you know, the, some of the pieces that they found floating up in various places um, in the South Pacific. Or I think it was the South, no, the Indian Ocean. Um, and were, you know, according to this expert, were like um, in a position that the airplane was in landing uh, position uh, to make these kind of marks uh, again i'm not sure how in the world that he was able to figure that out but um what was that where was i going with this oh ocean infinity um the company with the fancy equipment to do the uh search for the downed mh370 was basically told that they wouldn't be paid uh unless they actually found the the site of the crash and they were going to be paid like $70 million or something like that. And if they didn't find it, then basically they're not going to get any money. I don't know if that's true or not, but that seems like quite a gamble. 
Yeah, I, I don't know whether they hope to benefit you know, just you know benefit from the uh, uh, exposure of their pretty impressive equipment, uh, you know, and just get some advertising that way. But it's a lot of money they put into the, trying to find this aircraft. Yeah, you know, pe- people said the Titanic would never be found. Yeah, and they finally right. did find so it. Yeah, they did find it. So it 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 will be found. It's just a matter of when. Maybe. Uh, there, there are some. Uh, I think w- during this whole thing, when they were initiating the uh, search, there, there were a couple of stories of uh, airplanes that had disappeared and had never, had still not been found. Never say never, right? But uh, well, yeah, I remember the, the story I told a little while back of the one says uh, the says no, the uh, Hercules C one thirty that was stolen by a mechanic and crashed in the English Channel. They have gone and looked for that. But the problem there is there are so many crashed airplanes in the channel, they couldn't work out which one would have been the Hercules. Because, of course, during the war, aircraft were going down so often in the channel. Uh, and they kept seeing wrecked airplanes, and they were going, oh, this is impossible. <laughs> we, we don't know which one it is. Oh, the war. I thought it was maybe from the RAF's uh, pilot training no. school. <laughs> <laughs> it was a USAF airplane. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. All right, enough of that. Um, well, there, there is one very famous airplane that's never been found. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, but that's a pretty remote part of the world, that is. Yeah. We actually did a, uh, a little story about someone who reckoned they had a photograph of her after she'd been supposedly captured by the Japanese. Do you remember that, Jeff? Uh, yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty long shot, and it was mm-hmm. a pretty fuzzy photograph. But somebody reckoned the uh, Japanese military had captured her, and there, she was sitting there on the edge of a dock in a photograph. And again, someone else, I think, making money from uh, from this mystery. And I think they they took her to some kind of a prison cell block thing, and they thought they had evidence of that, and, and some bones buried in a in a graveyard that uh, seemed to be the kind of bones that a woman her size would have and that kind of thing. And uh, I don't, didn't hear much more about that. Did we? No, yeah, um, that's not true. Now I was uh, the first um, reference to this MH370 murder suicide theory was in an article sent by Sean. And then um, I just noticed, thank you, Liz. She included another uh, article three a, um, that uh, included uh, most of the information that I was trying to scan through as I was talking, and I could not find. Um, but uh, regarding the, uh, the the find find or get no fee kind of uh, arrangement that they made with Ocean Infinity, and uh, uh, let's see what else was I going to say, and then the information about the uh, about the damage to the. Uh, to the parts that were found after the accident, you know, the washed up parts. But uh, anyway, we'll put both of these uh, in the show notes so you can take a look at them as well. Okay. Let's continue with John's question regarding the calculation of the center of gravity. On listening to a podcast a couple of episodes ago, there was a discussion on the center of gravity for an aircraft with the movement of passengers. My question is what weight do you assign to an average passenger with working out the all-up weights and C of G? I was an aircraft technician in the RAF, therefore I understand weights and center of gravity. 
I do recall seeing an air, tra- air, trash, air crash investigation program where a contributing factor for ac- the accident was the average weight of a passenger not taking into account the increasing waistlines of the public. For Dr. Steph, I'm a runner and weighing 11 stone, 2 pounds, and he says in U.S. money that's 156 pounds. Therefore, us lightweights should get a larger package allowance. Ooh, really? That's what she said. And or airlines could give you an allowance in weight compared to your body mass or a reduced ticket price. What a good incentive to people to reduce their weight. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. Sorry. No. Um, so I think that uh, Captain Nick, you wanted to answer this. Oh, I tried to answer it. I, I had just spent uh, about an hour before we started the program trying to find our company's standard weights and they've moved them from. Uh, where I thought they were, uh, either that or they just haven't included the correct document in my uh, uh, EFB electronic flight book. But I had had done a little bit of looking around. Now, um, in the USA in '95, uh, now I'm working kilograms here. It was about 95 and a half kilos, uh, which is a passenger plus their carry-on plus baggage. And I think that would be uh, about 200 pounds if I'm not. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. And in 2003, they upped that to 116. In the UK, it's around 88 kilos for a man, 70 for a female, and 35 for a child. Charter flights, that changes slightly less for charter flights. Um, Other airlines have slightly different uh, ones. I noticed that... uh, EasyJet, I uh, use a man of 93 kilos, a lady of 75, and a child of 30. So, so long as the airline agrees standard weights with the uh, regulating authority, uh, it can vary because it depends on what type of flights you're doing, what the average uh, loads can be, and they can actually vary on uh, different routes. For example, if you're going somewhere where um, they're is notoriously a lot of hand baggage. Uh, you would obviously have to take that into account. Um, so it, it does vary. And, uh, of course, some flights, uh, they will actually physically weigh everyone and their bags, uh, just to be absolutely sure. Of course, average weights vary. If you're on a small aircraft, uh, they'll probably be um, a bit pessimistic. So the, because, obviously, the amount of weight uh, you can be uh, have uh, as a overweight situation is much smaller on a, a small aircraft than it is on a big airliner. You can uh, you can have quite a few hundred kilos uh, possible error plus or minus in a big airliner, and you probably wouldn't notice. But if you had that on a very small aircraft, you really would notice it. So the limits are probably tighter, and you have to err on the safe side on a small aircraft than you uh, small aircraft than you would have to on a big aircraft. I was trying to find, I, I had already uh, always remembered the weights as like 180 pounds um, for an adult passenger, I think in the summertime and then 200 in the wintertime, but I don't know if that's right or not either. That's uh, not correct. Okay. Do you know what the weights are, Dana? One, 190, 180, uh, 180, 185. It's an, I just did the search. It's an FA uh, change that came out. It used to be 170, 175. But they want to account for the weights, so it's uh, the FAA uses uh, 180 pounds for passengers during the summertime and 185 
during the winter time. Now, what is interesting is that includes a carry on. Yeah, that's, so, uh, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and, and our our standard weight, I think, for the crew, including our bag, is two hundred or thereabouts, mm-hmm. two ten, I think it is. It's right around there. I used to teach uh, weight and balance at uh, Acme a well, long time. I can ago. tell you that uh, when we get our weight uh, um, data record, that if a if we get like an amended one and they've added a passenger, it's always two hundred pounds. Um, the difference in the weight that is sent to us in our data. So um, I'm not sure if that's a, just an average or an approximation or what. But uh, uh, and by the way, the kilos that uh, Nick was referring to, I believe the 95 works out to be a 209 pounds, and the I think he said they bumped it up to 116, and that would make it 255 pounds. So quite significantly more weight um, for those those numbers anyway those yeah i i when i was walking around the museum i was uh taking a look at the um amount of weight you had to dial into the phantom ejector seat mm-hmm. uh and i used to have to try i used to weigh myself with all my gear on and back then when i was uh, a um a, a slim fit young man i still weighed 260 pounds with all my gear on the seat only uh the the, the amount you could dial into the seat only went up to 250 <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. That was very interesting, by the way. Uh, and you, just a reminder again uh, to watch that. That's the kind of information, those little uh, tidbits that you're going to see in that wonderful video that uh, Nev uh, video recorded. And uh, I, that was fascinating. It, you said, I think, that it was a mechanical linkage to adjust the angle of the uh, rockets on the bottom of the seat. That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, very simple, uh, those ejected seats, but they work very well. They're properly maintained. Go ahead, Dana. I was going to say, you know, there was that uh, 1900 in Charlotte that went down, crashed mm-hmm. into, you know, right next to the hangar. That's when they uh, changed the weights. And also, very interestingly enough, I, I did not, I forgot about this, but they only say that the assumed weight is 25 pounds for check bag. Now, we all know that every bag that comes on an airplane is very close to that 50-pound uh, weight limit, the maximum, uh, most of them. But, you know, you got you to think that uh, the 180 to 185 you know, if you think of uh, of the all the females and kids, you know, sometimes we have to use child weights to, to get the aircraft to be legal. Um, but it is actually, on average, a very, very accurate number. They've actually tested this over and over. Um, they had a, uh, I, I know this for a fact, going way back when an L-1011 landed in LaGuardia and, and had a nose wheel uh, collapse upon landing. Uh, in LaGuardia, they actually took all the bags off. They took all the passengers off and weighed everybody and everything. And the average weight was very close, within within several hundred pounds uh, of the actual uh, weight of, of what they figured everything out to be. So um, it's, you know, you look at, you say 100, 180 to 185 pounds, just have to think of Dr. Steph. I mean, if 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 yeah, she, she's like 220 you know, 230 something like 30, that 230 240 you know something like that so <laughs> it's all muscle though that's muscle weighs a lot <laughs> it's all muscle so i think my left leg may weigh more than dr steph does <laughs> <know>. so um <laughs> i'm just wondering yeah, if, so, if steph is still awake wherever she is in the world and if i'm going to get any kind of response from that last statement <laughs> i made you know i'm kidding of course steph <laughs> so 
yeah, yeah so that's i mean that's where the the change came from is that 1900 that went down in charlotte and that's uh, that's when they reviewed it went to from 170 and 75 to 180 to 85 so. Yeah, and they do carry out reasonably regular checks just to see uh, if the average weight needs to be changed. It's not like they ignore it until we have a crash and then look at it. It's looked at every few years. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you think of, you know, when people check bags, you get the big ones that weigh 50 pounds. Um, and then you get the, you know, people that get on the airplane, their the rollerboards being checked, and they probably weigh 20 pounds, you know. So it, it, it really does on average workout in, in a lot of averages. So it's just not a, a blind wag at it. Um, and, uh, yeah. It works. The one to be careful of though, are the charter flights out to the red sea where, uh, it's full of scuba divers and they've all stuck their, their lead weights in their hand luggage. No, <laughs> no, so, so they can... no. there's 150 divers each with about, you know, 20 pounds of lead just in their jet luggage, plus everything. <laughs> Nick. Now, you know, they actually... Scuba, you know I'm a scuba diver, right? Yeah, yeah there's nothing, there's nothing, uh, no, not casting aspersions at all. I'm not, no, I'm just saying all those guys get to the Red Sea, watch out for them. Also, charters like military charters, they have to use much higher figures because the military people are carrying a lot more gear, a lot, a lot of heavy stuff with them. So, you know, it, uh, there are um, uh, f- things built in, things. That's when you can't determine the word you're really looking for. Things that are built into the system to account for that kind of thing. Um, but haven't you just on occasion, like, taken off from somewhere and you're, the nose of the airplane is, like, really a lot heavier than you think and the airplane is just not performing the way that you, sh- you think it should based on the conditions and you wonder your, to yourself – Hmm, I wonder if they got the weight right this time. I don't know. It's happened to me a few times. But uh, more importantly, loading. Yeah. Loading. Yeah, where, I, where I they put a few incident reports where uh, you know, it, the the pilots have said well it took significantly longer or uh, a lot more effort to get the aircraft off and they have done a back check and found out that it was improperly loaded. Well, and and they're they, again not to reference YouTube and try to try to uh, um, solicit business for them, or whatever. But they're uh, not too long ago there was a seven four seven taken off from the Middle East someplace, where it and it's a four hundred, um, and it's terrible to watch. It's it's a very di- uh, disturbing video. But you see the seven four seven just take off pitch nose high because all of the load on the aircraft shifted all aft when it took off it wasn't tied down properly and in the airplane goes in so oh that is not a back room yeah yeah, yeah. we talked about yeah. that just recently uh dana when uh, yeah. that c-130 crashed and we're wondering if that might have something similar to the national um cargo flight that took off a of bag room and the yeah, uh, load it shifted. Just, it, it just goes to show you how important weight and balance is and making sure everything's yep. loaded properly very, very important. It certainly does, Ollie. It certainly does. Uh, Richard, that's a reference to Laurel and Hart. No, Ollie. Yeah, Lawrence and yeah. Hardy, right? Okay. Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Lawrence. That's uh, Laurel's more formal name. 
Richard says, hi, crew, just a quick one, because I know you've talked about it twice now, but I thought I'd tell you about the free seating weight and balance situation. I work for a rather large airline, which operates many Boeing 737-800s. Hmm. We used to have a free seating policy, and we had two simple rules. If we were expecting less, I guess he means fewer than 177 passengers, our aircraft has 189 passenger seats, we would simply block off rows three and four to keep some of the weight off the nose. And if we were expecting fewer than 133 passengers, we would block off the, uh, let's see, block off from six rows and the last four rows to keep the weight in the center of the cabin. The captain and cabin crew would always have a quick look, make sure that the passengers were distributed around the cabin. If there was a football team all sat near the back and no one at the front, for example, then this would be an obvious problem, and they would be asked to move. Simple. We have assigned seating now. The cabin is split into forward, center, and aft sections, and every now and then the dispatcher would say, as they're completing the load sheet, that there, there's too much weight in the front, can you move five passengers from the front to the middle section for takeoff? And that would sort the problem out. That will be popular. Yeah. But that, that makes sense. I'm glad that uh, the um, for those airlines that are still free seating, um, I'm sure they must do the same kind of thing, where they kind of do a quick perusal of where everybody is seating, uh, seated in the cockpit. I mean, not cockpit. Let me try that again. They'll do a quick perusal of where everybody is seated in the cabin and determine whether or not it looks like it's a good distribution or not. That's good, interesting stuff. And finally, if you haven't had enough weight and balance, we're going to do this one too. From Derek, listening to three twenty flight episode 323, where you are discussing airplane weight and balance and what Southwest does with moving passengers around. I was flying from Baltimore to Orlando last week, and this became an issue for the Southwest flight at the neighboring gate. They were operating an 800 series of the 737 with only 29 passengers booked. Uh, the capacity is 175 uh, passengers in single class seating. So uh, the, the flight was way undersold. Prior to boarding, the gate agent instructed over the intercom that for weight and balance issues, the captain was requiring all passengers to sit in the first 12 rows. At least in this situation, this is how they handled it. The route for this particular flight was uh, Baltimore to Nashville, so a very fairly short flight, one hour and 40 minutes flying time, 600 miles. So uh, that's... Uh, I love the way they blame it on the captain. So yeah. that if you want to take it out on anyone, then go and speak to that well, it's guy. It's always our fault, man. Bars. Come always. on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You don't say for your own safety, we need to get the weight and balance right. It's it's the captain has insisted. The captain is being a pisser. <laughs> <laughs> Did I use that correctly? Not really. Okay. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I didn't think I did. That's why I wanted to ask. Oh, well. He's being a what? He's being a, a snot. <laughs> yes, that would work. Okay. Yes. The back Schmuck. captain's being a bit snottish, Schmuck. and he wants you to all move. <laughs> Not well, because there's any reason for it, but he just wants to see you all move. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. Which which brings up, you guys are talking kind of all around it, but brings up the very interesting thing called payload optimization, which means no, no non-revs get on airplanes. That's really what it means. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 the term that Acme uses to um, try to maximize the amount of fuel the people they can put on and carry as much cargo as they can. So that's a non-rev killer. I was in my first um, year at Acme, Dana, and my wife and I flew to Frankfurt uh, for um, we were going to do a Rhine River cruise. And so we flew into Frankfurt mm, and then we lovely. took the train to Cologne, Dusseldorf, and it was like a seven day Rhine River cruise. Really nice. But they give us like a 50 percent discount for the airline rate. And it was a wonderful cruise. And at the end of it, I think we ended up in um, Basel, Switzerland. And then we took a train to Geneva. And then the next day back to Munich. And we spent a couple of days in Munich. And then we were going to take the flight, the nonstop from Munich to Atlanta to end our wonderful vacation. And we go just walking up to the uh, desk. And the uh, gate agent looks at me. And uh, she says, uh, may I help you? And I said, yep, we're here to, I mean, I'd check the numbers on the telephone. We didn't have the computer to look at uh, load data or seat availability. You had to call a special number and go through a telephone tree that was just painful. But VRU. Uh, yeah, VRU, thank you. And uh, so I think they said they were like, 30, 40 seats available. And I'm thinking, score, this is going to be great. We might even get first class. And so we go waddling up to the gate and the gate agent has this kind of funny smirk on her face. And she goes, may I help you? And I said, yep, we're here to check in for our non-rep flight back to Atlanta. And she goes, hmm. Well, of course, you know that Munich's runway is not as long as the runways at Frankfurt. And that this time of year, late October, because of the winds, uh, we routinely turn away non-revenue standby travelers uh, because we cannot carry that much weight on the airplane because to have enough fuel to make it across the pond. And I just must have had a blank stare or something because <laughs> she knew full well I had no idea. And she said, of course, you have your supervisor's authorization for um, S3 something or other or some kind of like passes to fly on a different airline to get to Frankfurt. And I just, again, continued with my blank stare. And then she said, well, lucky for you, I have the authority to issue these passes. I mean, I don't even, I didn't even know who my supervisor was, you know, as a pilot at Acme, I guess it's our chief pilot, chief pilot office, but I, I didn't even know who that person was. And I had no idea what she was talking about. So there is an uh, example of payload op optimization, Dana, at the time. Now, since then, Munich has extended their runways, and so they can handle you know fully loaded airplanes all, uh, from east to west that time of year. But at the time, uh, the L-1011 couldn't do it, and so we ended up uh, getting our pass to uh, board a 727, Lufthansa 727, from Munich to uh, Frankfurt. And then we were on our way in the very back of the L-1011 in the smoking section uh, back to Atlanta. It was a very pleasant flight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Not at all. But anyway. Those were the days when I used to walk up to an airplane and look at the brown streaks yep. under the belly of the aircraft from where the air conditioning vented out and the uh, bleed valves. Uh, and it was just nicotine stains around the whole back of the airplane. Horrible. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty pretty sick looking, actually. Yeah. But uh, yeah, 
So I learned my lesson when it comes to trip planning that I should do more research. And uh, but, you know, I took a lot of things for granted back then. I guess I probably still do. But yeah. And you should have taken a box of chocolates for the check in stuff. Yeah. But you know what? I don't think that that would have made any any difference in this case. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we made it back and I, I was able to fly my next trip. And so I didn't get fired. So happy, happy ending. Okay. Wow. Anything else we want to add to weight and balance and center of gravity uh, and all that kind of stuff? When I did the weight and balance exam, I there's a 75% pass mark and I got 75%. So let's move on. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> yes. Weight and balance exam? Yeah. For the uh, ATP? Let's not go there. Yeah, for the ATP. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Performance yeah. A. They do like 14 separate tests to get their airline transport pilot licenses, right? Yeah, we did then, that's for sure. I think they still do. In two days. In two days. Yeah. One of which, of course, was Morse code. That was probably one of the hardest. So thank goodness we don't do that here in the U.S. Otherwise, a lot of us on this show would not be doing this job. <laughs> At least I never would have made it. <laughs> I never would have either. Okay, moving on. Uh, number eight, Bill. Uh, hey, Cap Jeff, I know you used to fly the 727. I've spoken with pilots who love the power-to-weight ratio of the aircraft and describe it as a hot rod. Do you remember it fondly? Okay, I need to stop here for a second. I have never, ever in my life ever considered the 727 to be a hot rod, and I don't really think that the power-to-weight ratio of the airplane was that great, honestly. Uh, but it was a great airplane to fly. I mean, a lot of great... Um, uh, the the way it uh, you hand the hand flying characteristics manual flying characteristics of the airplane was awesome, um, but I I've always been impressed more with the Mad Dog and its power to weight ratio than I was at the seven twenty seven and the seven twenty seven had three JT eight Ds a different model uh, lower thrust rating and uh, the MD eighty eight MD ninety is uh, much more power believe it or not. Um, Anyway, moving on. Also, could you comment on the 727 incident in 1979 involving TWA 841? The final NTSB report indicates the crew probably extended the flaps at cruise altitude. I've heard rumors about the belief that it would provide better performance. Anyway, fascinating story and near disaster. Would appreciate your take as a former 727 jockey. Maybe I'll see you someday at Bradley, BDL-1. What is BDL-1? Hmm. I know BDL is Bradley, but do you know, Dana, what BDL-1 is? No. Huh. no Maybe there's another airport in the Bradley area named BDL-1. No, know. I think it might be just type error. Oh, Typing it could be. Error. Yeah, maybe that was an exclamation point. Yep. Okay, maybe sorry. It was. Yeah, my bad. Thank you, Bill, from Connecticut. And... So, uh, just to remind everyone, the flight that he's referring to, TWA Flight 841, this happened in 1979, and they were a, uh, it was a domestic flight, scheduled passenger flight from John F. Kennedy and New York en route to MSP in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and on April 4th, 1979, at or around 9.48 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, while flying over Saginaw, Michigan, uh, up at the Great Lakes area, the Boeing 727-31 airliner began a sharp, uncommanded roll to the right and subsequently went into a spiral dive. 
The pilots were able to regain control of the aircraft and made a successful emergency landing at Detroit Metropolitan Airport. Uh, you may remember the name of the captain. He has a very distinctive name. Hoot, actually, it was not his given name. It was his nickname, uh, Captain Gibson, Captain Hoot Gibson. And uh, I guess his first name, Harvey, Captain Harvey Hoot Gibson, First Officer Scott Kennedy and Flight Engineer Gary Banks. And they, uh, as Bill correctly stated, the Na uh, National Transportation Safety Board did in their final report, indicate that they thought it was something that was uh, initiated by the crew in order to uh, extend the flaps to two degrees. Uh, but on the uh, 727, if you uh, extended the flaps to two degrees, uh, you would uh, also extend the slats, the uh, uh, leading edge slats of the airplane. And you don't want to do that at any kind of cruise altitude. And so they surmised that they pulled some kind of a circuit breaker to deactivate the slat actuation and they extended the flaps to 2% or two degrees. And that was supposed to give them the ability to fly a little bit faster, provides a little bit more lift, maybe a little less fuel burn, etc. Now, that was the common knowledge. In fact, when I saw TWA Flight 841, that's what you know popped into my mind. But do you remember the show where we talked about a book that I had read uh, by Emilio? Uh, let's see. Let me. I want to make sure I get this right. So um, let me put in something in my browser. He wrote a book about the first ditching of an airliner it was a DC-9 and uh, let's see here scapegoat book 727 okay um, the author is Emilio Corsetti the third he wrote this book um, I think 35 miles from shore which is a great book talking about the ditching and rescue of uh, Antilles something or other ALM flight 980 and I highly recommended the book well he a few years later ended up writing another book called scapegoat a flight crew's journey from heroes to villains to redemption and this book deals exclusively with this TWA flight 841 and I was just accepting the common knowledge and uh, the uh, results of the NTSB investigation that that's what happened that uh, while the flight engineer was out of the cockpit uh, returning uh, in-flight meal trays to the flight attendants or whatever uh, the uh, captain and co-pilot pulled a circuit breaker for the slats extended the flaps to two degrees and then the flight engineer comes back in, notices that there's a uh, circuit breaker out, and just resets the circuit breaker, closes the circuit breaker, and then, of course, that extends the slats, and then the airplane just goes crazy. Goes, does a 360-degree, like a barrel roll, and then subsequently a spiral dive. It was started off at 39,000 feet, and they recovered at 5,000 feet by lowering the landing gear. And the airplane was uh, you know received quite a bit of damage, but nobody died 
I don't think there were that many injuries on board the aircraft. Anyway, um, there's a lot more to the story than I knew. It turns out that uh, there was some kind of a petition to rehear and reinvestigate the whole thing, and the uh, NTSB refused. But there was uh, some evidence that that it was not the fault of the crew, and that uh, they did a wonderful job of saving everybody aboard this flight. And uh, I would tell you, and I'm going to do this myself, I'm going to uh, buy this book, Scapegoat, and read it myself, and then I'll give you a report on it. But uh, it just uh, makes for some interesting um, discussion by uh, about what actually happened here. You know, that was back in the days that uh, we didn't have the, the internet and Twitter and all kinds of independent sources of information out there. And perhaps if this had occurred during the time we live now, that maybe the investigation would have uh, followed a different path. I don't know. Do you remember this um, incident, uh, Dana? Yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, it's one of the first uh, first one I, I really remember is, you know, the Easton L-1011 in Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first incident I remember reading about. And then uh, this is the second one I had ever ever read about you know that's i was nine years old then so not to rub it in or anything but <laughs> yeah. uh yeah I, I remember that and uh, it turns out uh i'd like to read the book too so when you're done with it because I'm, I'm a pilot and i'd love for you to yeah share absolutely i'll do that um yeah so just look for it uh, i'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes for uh uh, Emilio's book called Scapegoat, A Flight Crew's Journey from Heroes to Villains to Redemption. And uh, he has it available in Kindle, hardcover, audiobook, and uh, some used books as well. You know, and that's that's a, a very good point. Uh, you know, this book is, I don't, obviously haven't read it yet, but, you know, it, it's amazing how fast they are to point the finger at the crews. I mean, even look at what happened with the, with the incident on the Hudson, I mean, they tried to yes. blame them from not, for not going back to the airport, and it wasn't until uh, until uh, so I, I, I don't know if it's dramatized or not, but uh, when Captain uh, Sully Sullenberger, uh, you know, said, "Hey, listen, you got to put the the human factor in there," you know, every got everybody that was in the simulator immediately turned straight towards the airport because they knew it was coming. Yeah, so they could all make it, but he had, you know had to process it. It made a really quick decision. Um, and you know, they just try to, to fry the crew every single time. Now, interestingly, uh, when, you know, Sully was doing all these, um, media, um, uh, appearances and on some of the big talk shows, late night talk shows and that kind of thing, when he was talking about the movie, he said they did a really good job for most of it, but he said that he felt bad for the NTSB because he said that he thinks that they put them in a, um, in a negative light that they should not have been put in. So I think they kind of dramatized that a little bit too much, in his opinion. Uh, but on the other hand, this uh, TWA Flight 841, it seems like th- this was actually like what we saw in the Sully movie. This is actually kind of the thing that happened with the NTSB investigation. Um, and uh, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, the yeah. And, and and we're seeing the same thing with poor the poor guy on MH370. I mean, this is exactly mm-hmm. you know it's easy to to point the fingers at the crew or crew members whether they're alive or dead. I mean, it's 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 what they try to I do. I think one of the things initially that you know he talks about from hero to villains to whatever, 
Um, initially, they were hailing them as heroes until they found out this fact. Testing. And again, one, two, three. One, two, three. this is one of those things where you kind of go, hmm, that is a little suspicious. The right. aircraft was equipped with a Fairchild Industries Model A100 cockpit voice recorder. However, 21 minutes of the 30-minute tape were blank. Tests of the CVR and the aircraft revealed no discrepancies in the CVR's electrical and recording systems. The CVR can, tape can be erased by means of the bulk erase feature on the CVR control panel located in the cockpit. This feature can be activated only after the aircraft is on the ground with its parking brake engaged. In a deposition taken by the safety board, the captain stated that he usually activates the bulk erase feature on the CVR at the conclusion of each flight to preclude inappropriate use of recorded conversations. However, in this instance, he could not recall having done so. <laughs> so it did yeah. seem a little suspicious. And, of course, Dana and I know that uh, we have the ability to, to, to manipulate or not, not necessarily bulk erase, but we can deactivate the cockpit voice recorder in, in certain circumstances. Uh, but that is not allowed. We're not allowed to do that. That's a definitely a, a violation of our rules and regulations. Um, so I can understand why the investigating bodies thought, hmm, why would he erase the cockpit voice recorder? Is he trying to cover up something? Did they actually do what they, you know, are, are accusing them of? But, uh, Anyway, I'm going to read this book and see what the evidence is regarding uh, the fact that maybe that was just a mechanical error that just, uh, you know, the number seven slat extended on its own uh, at cruise altitude and they did everything they could to recover it. So interesting controversy, I guess. Controversy. Controversy. Yeah. Well, may, may I make a suggestion? Yes. Plain tales. Plain Tales might be a great thing to do right now because our good Captain Nick is gone again. So, without further ado... The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Luftwaffe Pilot and the Old Pub Two pilots from the Second World War meet and drink beers recounting war stories. It wasn't an unusual thing in years gone by, although nowadays those veterans are sadly becoming thin on the ground. These two pilots flew together in the war, but not as you might think. I've spoken disparagingly in the past about the Nazi regime, but of course nothing is pure black and white. There were heartless combatants on both sides, but there were also good people, and this is one of those heart-lifting acts of compassion that came as an unexpected gift to a crew in the most desperate of situations. Second Lieutenant Charles Brown was a farm boy from Weston in West Virginia who enlisted during the war and trained as a pilot. He qualified as an aircraft commander and on the 20th of December 1943, he and his rookie crew were flying their very first mission with the 379th Bomber Group of the 8th Air Force, stationed at RAF Kimbleton in Cambridgeshire. The airfield was near the ancient village of the same name that is home to many old pubs like the George, the Wheatsheaf and the Mermaid, 
some of which have stood since the 14th century. If you are ever out that way and drive the B road between Kimbleton and Stowe Longer, you will cross over the remains of the main runway that Charlie Brown took off from on that day. He was flying a B-17F Flying Fortress, which was named Ye Olde Pub, I suspect because of the crew's habit of visiting the local hostelries in their downtime. Charlie Brown was a youngster of 21, and conscious of his youth, he had told his crew that he was 25, but regardless, he was a good and conscientious commander who wanted to do his best for his men. The mission that they were engaged on that day was a notoriously difficult one. They were tasked with bombing the Focke-Wulf 190 aircraft factory at Bremen. Their pre-flight briefing reminded them to be vigilant as they might encounter dozens of German fighters and Bremen was surrounded by 250 accurate flat guns. Ioldi Pub was given a formation position nicknamed Purple Heart Corner, a spot on the edge of the formation that was considered particularly vulnerable since the fighters often engaged the edges rather than risking going through the middle of a bomber formation. Running in towards the target at 27,000 feet and in strict formation, so unable to jink or manoeuvre to avoid either the fighters or the flak, the luck ran out for Charlie Brown and his crew. Anti-aircraft shells hit ye olde pub, shattering the plexiglass nose, destroying their number two engine and damaging the number four, which Charlie had to throttle back to prevent from overspeeding. Unable to keep up with his formation and be protected by the arcs of supporting fire from adjacent aircraft, Ioldi Pub suffered repeated fighter attacks. Again and again, over a dozen Messerschmitt ME-109s and Focke-Wulf 190s fired at Charlie's aircraft. 20mm cannon shells and 13mm machine gun bullets raking the bomber, and it was testament to the B-17's strength, armour plating and firepower that they were able to continue with their bomb run. The young aircraft commander lined up his aircraft and they finally released their bomb load down onto the target. But with the attacks continuing, things were getting desperate. The number three engine was also damaged and would only produce around half power. The crew oxygen system was gone and both the hydraulic and electric systems damaged. Half of the rudder had been shot away as was the left elevator and most of the tailplane on that side. With the nose cone gone, a bitterly cold gale of air was blowing through the aircraft at minus 60 degrees centigrade. Most of the guns had frozen up and jammed and many of the crew were wounded. The tail gunner, Eki Eckenrode, had been decapitated by a direct hit from a cannon shell. A Russian Yelisenko, the waist gunner, was critically wounded in the leg, which would eventually need amputation. 
Blackie Blackford, the ball turret gunner's feet were frozen when his heated suit short-circuited, and Dick Peachout, the radio operator, had been hit in the eye by a cannon shell. Charlie Brown himself had also joined the list of wounded when he was struck in the shoulder. Their morphine supply had frozen and was useless. The radio and intercom systems were wrecked, and the aircraft, with only one engine providing full power, was peppered with holes and very badly damaged. However, throughout this short and vicious air battle, the gunners brought down one enemy fighter and damaged two others before, by a combination of lack of oxygen and the damage to the aircraft, Charlie lost control. Ye oldie pub turned onto its back and plummeted towards the ground. Circling down in a death spiral, the entire crew lost consciousness. Miraculously, Charlie Brown came round, and with barely enough height left, he pulled the cripple aircraft out of the dive and recovered. There was another pilot in the air at that time. He was an ace Luftwaffe fighter pilot, with 27 victories, who had flown over 400 combat missions. Ludwig Franz Stigler was the younger of two sons, who grew up in a Catholic family. His father had flown in the First World War, and with another veteran pilot, who was then the local priest, he helped set up a gliding school. Franz got his first chance to become a pilot, but his mother wanted him to train as a priest. However, after being caught with the local brewmaster's daughter, it became clear that the world of aviation was his true calling. Stigler earned a degree in aeronautical engineering and then became an airline pilot for Lufthansa before training for the military. His family were vocally opposed to the rise of Hitler. Indeed, at one point, Franz was interviewed by the Gestapo, but soon the country was at war, and Franz did his duty. He flew with some of the best fighter pilots that Germany ever produced, Adolf Galland and Gustav Rodel, who once told him, "'You are fighter pilots, first, last, always.' If I ever hear of any of you shooting at someone in a parachute, I'll shoot you myself. Back in control of the crippled B-17, Charlie Brown recalled, I either spiralled or spun and came out of the spin just above the ground. My only conscious memory was of dodging trees, but I had nightmares for years and years about dodging buildings and then trees. I think the Germans thought that we had spun in and crashed. The oldie pub was staggering on at 1,000 feet when Franz Stigler, in his sleek ME109, spotted him. Stigler needed just one more kill to win his knight's cross, so he closed on the lone bomber. However... Through the damaged bomber's airframe, Stigler was able to see the injured men. The rear guns hung down and he had a clear view of the bloody tail gunner's body as he moved up. He told interviewers in 1991 that he was aghast at the amount of damage the bomber had sustained. 
Its nose cone was missing. It had gaping holes in the fuselage. He could see crew members giving first aid to the wounded, and most of the plane's guns hung limp, unmanned. Stigler was a man of honour who once said, You follow the rules of war for you, not your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. Staying in formation with the bomber and convinced the aircraft would never make it back to England, I saw his gunner lying in the back profusely bleeding so I couldn't shoot. I tried to get him to land in Germany and he didn't react at all. So I figured, well, turn him to Sweden because his airplane was so shot up. I never saw anything flying so shot up. A bewildered Brown stared back through his side window, not believing what he was seeing. He had already counted himself as a casualty numerous times, but this strange German pilot kept gesturing at him. There was no way he was going to land the plane, but the pilot stayed with him until they reached the North Sea. When it was clear that Brown wasn't staying in Germany, Stigler saluted peeled off, and flew out of ye oldie pub's nightmarish day. How Charlie Brown managed to fly the 250 miles across the North Sea and land his plane at RAF Seething, home of the 448th Bomb Group, nobody knew, but he did a magnificent job. As his citation for the Air Force Cross says, Displaying the coolness, courage and airmanship of more senior pilots, he boldly rejected the enemy fighters' attempts at forced landing and directed the struggling aircraft to the North Sea. Whilst attempting this improbable, treacherous return to home station, Lieutenant Brown's command and control was instrumental to the remaining crew's survival. While in the cockpit, he provided the essential engine control, fuel management and piloting skills necessary to the cockpit team during their hazardous yet miraculous return of the aircraft's perilous crossing of the North Sea back to home station in England. Through his extraordinary heroism, superb airmanship and aggressiveness in the face of the enemy, Lieutenant Brown reflected the highest credit upon himself and the United States Army Air Corps. At the after-flight debriefing, Charlie Brown and his crew were told not to repeat this to the rest of the unit so as not to build up any positive feelings towards enemy pilots. Brown commented, Someone decided you can't be human and be flying in a German cockpit. Stiegler said nothing of the incident to his commanding officers, knowing that a German pilot who spared the enemy while in combat risked execution. And so you think the story might end. But not so. Charlie flew a total of 29 missions before being offered a position in the Department of State. He served his country as a Foreign Service officer and as a diplomat, before founding an environmental research centre and being named the National Inventor of the Year in 1987. 
About this time, he started thinking about that fateful day in 1943. He started having nightmares, but in his dream, there would be no act of mercy. He would awaken just before his bomber crashed. Brown took on a new mission. He tried to find that German pilot whose code of honour had allowed him to live that day. He scoured military archives in the US and England. He attended pilots' reunions and shared his story. He finally placed an ad in a German newsletter for former Luftwaffe pilots, retelling the story and asking if anyone knew the pilot. He had to find that German. Who was he? Why did he save my life? On the 18th of January 1990, Brown received a letter. He opened it and read, Dear Charles, all these years I wondered what happened to that B-17. Did she make it home? Did her crew survive their wounds? To hear of your survival has filled me with indescribable joy. It was Stigler. Brown wrote in reply, To say thank you, on behalf of my surviving crew members and their families, appears totally inadequate. Stigler had survived the war, ending up as an ME262 jet pilot, but afterwards he found life in Germany difficult. He moved to Canada and worked as an engineer for many years, eventually buying an old ME108, which he painted in his old Jagdschwader markings and flew at air shows as the bad guy. Both pilots, now retired, were living in North America, and when they met, they hugged and wept and laughed about their encounter, but the deep emotion of the event was never far below the surface. Stigler had lost his brother, his friends and his country. He was virtually exiled by his countrymen after the war. There were 28,000 pilots who fought for the German Air Force. Only 1,200 survived. The war cost him everything. Charlie Brown was the only good thing to come out of World War II for Franz. It was the one thing he could be proud of. The meeting helped Brown as well, says his oldest daughter, Dawn. Brown and Stigler became close friends. They shared fishing trips together. They would fly cross-country to each other's homes and take road trips together to share their story at schools and veterans' reunions. Brown's daughter says her father would worry about Stigler's health and constantly check in on him. It wasn't just for show, she says. They really did feel for each other. They talked about once a week. As his friendship with Stigler deepened, something else happened to her father, Dawn says. The nightmares went away. The two men remained close until they passed away within months of each other in 2008. After Charlie Brown's death, the family found a book given to him by Stigler. Inside was an inscription. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. 
on the 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction, her plane so badly damaged, it was a wonder that she was still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie. Your brother, Franz. Well, what did you think of that one, Dana? I didn't even want to turn the ca- the camera back on because it brought. I mean, I'm sitting here crying. It's an yeah, amazing story. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. The things I I like about it particularly uh, that uh, this guy was a, a rookie pilot with his crew on his very first mission, and uh, Stiegler was uh, an ace, and he only needed one more kill to get the coveted Knight's Cross, which was. Uh, yeah a really high level of Iron Cross, and yet he had the humanity in him, even during what was for Germany the turning part of the war when they really were uh, starting to lose, um, to let this crew go. And and I have to respect the man enormously for, for doing that. It just shows that people, even in the worst of times, can be decent absolutely that, that we we are uh, <clears throat> we can all be human yeah so now there I, were quite I, a few people who suggested i covered that story it took me some time to get round to it for which i apologize but uh, a fine uh, gentleman called michel um i hope i pronounced that right uh, who tweets uh, under the handle aquila who first suggested it. So I'm, I'm going to attribute that to him, Michelle. Thank you very much indeed. Um, at first, I kind of dismissed it because uh, I thought it was probably, um, you know, not necessarily all true. But uh, I went as far as uh, researching it through Snopes, um, or is it called Snoops? Uh, Snoops, the web- yeah. Snoops, the website that verifies an awful lot of uh, this sort of stuff, and they had tackled the story and looked at various aspects of it to see which were fanciful and which were true. And the vast majority of the story were true um, as far as they could uh, tell. And that, so there were bits of it which I, uh, I left out because there was a little bit of doubt as to the authenticity, but the vast majority of that was uh, entirely true. And uh, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine what... Uh, uh, young Charlie Brown, 21-year-old, sitting in his wrecked B-17, must have thought when that uh, sleek-nosed 109 just motored up beside him. I, I find that incredible. Yeah, I, I can't even begin to imagine. I mean, that was just, uh, I just, wow. And, and you know, I, I the fact that they found each other after the war and, became the best of friends. It oh, just, isn't that the best bit? I mean, it, Charlie Brown went, part. yeah, he went on to have a very successful career. He was, I mean, he was, uh, he ran big companies. He was uh, an inventor. He uh, 
developed some very clever stuff uh, to do with uh, keeping diesel fuel uh, green. And if Jeff was around, he's uh, actually walking the dog right now, he could play going green. It would have been a perfect chance. <laughs> uh, as well as, uh, of course, he retired as, I think, as a lieutenant colonel. He had got the Air Force Cross. He very successful military career and a very successful civil career. For uh, Stiegler, who was a remarkably fine pilot, of course, after the war, he suffered dreadfully. He had he, Germany um, did not, uh, you know, he, he found it very hard to find his way through the the new Germany. Uh, and in, even in Canada, he was just, I mean, just an ordinary engineer. He, but um, the fact that they met up again, I think, gave Stigler a chance to uh, regain some of his pride in. Uh, you know, in, in being a pilot in the Second World War. Uh, he was fighting for the side we consider the wrong side, but uh, he still, when he did fight, he did so honorably, and you've just got to take your hat off to the man. Yeah, I, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. I, you, you really can't, there's nothing you can say about that other than it spoke for itself. And uh, again, Nick, I mean, that's, uh, it's unbelievable the job that you do in these stories and that that just that was very very touching i mean that that story is probably one of the best ones i've heard oh thanks just, it, it is a great one the uh the b-17s they suffered dreadfully uh in the war i mean they really were they they took an enormous amount of uh, casualties what is lovely about that story i didn't make a big thing of it i think i'm pretty sure i mentioned it the only uh guy that died was the tail gunner who was killed uh, while they were flying the mission he was he was he was killed but even the guy who had over his leg amputated survived and the guy that took a cannon shell to the head he survived so uh charlie brown got his whole crew back uh alive other than that poor tail gunner who uh, obviously uh, just caught one and uh, there was nothing they could do but the fact that they're Medical supplies, uh, all the morphine was frozen up. They were all suffering from frostbite. They were all suffering from hypoxia. Uh, they, <laughs> they all lost consciousness. They very nearly piled in anyway. I mean, it's just, you know, that from one respect, you've got to say they were put in a dreadful situation. But then Lady Luck obviously decided that uh, – the old pub <laughs> <Deserved> to <laughs> fly again. I don't know if the aircraft was was uh, wrecked when it uh, was uh, uh, you know repaired when it landed, but uh, I'd like to think it was. Well, you remember? Uh, you probably you may not even remember, but uh, a conversation we had a long time ago about uh, uh, about one of my favorite aircraft ever um, is the oh. B seventeen. That's I, right, and, and we did have that conversation, and it's it was an amazing aircraft in, in Second World War. I think it made a huge difference, and it was a very strong aircraft. So, oh, uh, my was. hats off, Absolutely. my hats off to uh, to to him flying the aircraft and the aircraft, you know, saving the day for them, and, and of course, Stigler and and, and uh, being human. So, yeah, um, yeah, very much so. And, and there's a sweet touch there. The fact that he came from a Catholic family, that he obviously had a uh, a deep religious faith. Uh, he, other than his fanciful ways with the brewmaster's daughter, which I loved, he he might have been a priest. In fact, he was, you know, a priest helped form that glider school that that trained him initially as a as a youngster to learn to fly. Uh, but uh, he and his family carried that uh, faith with them through the war, and. Uh, 
Uh, his, uh, his elder brother was uh, very vocal about uh, the Nazis, didn't like them at all. Sadly, uh, he was killed quite early on in the war. He was a night fighter. Yeah. Well, a very amazing, uplifting story for a change. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And I will, will, I'll soon drag you back down into the depths. I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, that was one to wet the cheeks, I think. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, I, I, I love it. I, I didn't realize just how good it was going to be until I uh, started reading it and working on it. And then I went, geez, this is just one fantastic story. Yeah, war is such a horrible thing. But uh, when you see little glimpses of humanity in there, that makes you feel good about it does humans. absolutely yeah and and lovely also not lovely but touching that uh, they die within a few months of each other yeah those two those two old friends as they became yep all right well let's move on apparently i skipped one of our items in the feedback folder and i'll do that one right now this is uh, sent in from brian and he just gave us a youtube link and one word enjoy so I'm going to play just a little snippet of this. Uh, you can watch the whole video uh, on the uh, on the YouTubes. Uh, this is um, College Humor, the channel, and you'll probably I recognize. Love, I love watching this. You'll, this re you'll so recognize maybe some of these voices. <laughs> Next, checking in. You know it. Go ahead and place any bags or pets on the scale, please. No problem. I cannot allow that animal to board the plane. Oh, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. She's she's a surface animal. She's a dinosaur. I mean, he needs her for emotional support. No. Yes, please, we're not just one of those bogus a-hole couples. I get anxiety, I need her to calm me down. Oh, word. Because I'm getting anxiety just standing here. Emotional support, dinosaur. <laughs> I'm getting anxiety just standing here. I it's, love that. That was very good. And of course, Chris Pratt and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. You know, from the uh, uh, what, what's the name of the movies? The uh, uh, Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Uh, you should watch the whole thing, and uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Thank you, Brian, for that. It was a, we're not one of those a hole. Bogus a-hole couples. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that we are. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is really cute. Um, PJ Guff Gustafson, uh, living in the Houston area. We've heard from PJ many, many times over the years. He's a longtime listener and uh, feedback contributor. And he uh, contacted me about something, and then he sent a link to a... Uh, his YouTube channel, and he said, I took some YouTube of this uh, flight that I took with my neighbor, Grant, and his daughter, Ellie, along with my daughter, Hannah, on a flight, uh, sightseeing flight around Houston. I'm just going to play a little bit of a, a snippet of the audio just to kind of entice you to go watch the entire uh, YouTube video that we'll, that we'll put in the show notes, and here we go. Everything looks good. Feet on the floor. Reach the brakes. Full power set. Instruments are green. Airspeed coming alive. Coming up on 55 knots. Cub 605, make a left. Rotate, the there we go. 317 left, clear for takeoff. Six oh, that's nice. Oh, that's easy. Northbound. 
This is cool. What's really cute about it is uh, well, his his neighbor, uh, Grant, is from the UK. He has a nice uh, British accent, I think, if I'm picking it up per- correctly. Uh, but uh, the two g- little girls in the back, I don't, I don't know how old they are, but uh, they, they make all these great comments that like, Dad, you're flying the airplane and this is cool. We're up in the air. It's just, and he can, sometimes he'll go, OK, let's we need to be quiet now. We need to be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, kids are just enamored with uh, you know the flying, Excellent. so uh, very uplifting. So that's the next generation. That's right. So check it out. Who knows? Uh, Ellie and Hannah may be captain and co-pilot of a flight that you take in the future. You never know. Uh, let's see. Continuing on here with more feedback. I, although we're getting pretty close to that three-hour mark, so uh, we can't do a lot more. Again, I think that we were a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit. Uh, what's the word I'm looking optimistic. for? Optimistic. That's it. That's it. Uh, well, and I was also very long-winded in, in the uh, intro today as well. So, well, oh well, you some know, of these, that's okay. Some of these we could bang out quite quickly. Okay, let's try. Ralph writes in. Do you have a preference for a runway surface? And he says, which runway surface do you prefer, blacktop or concrete? Grooved is better, I would assume. Wet versus dry, summer versus winter. Any other considerations? Keep up the good work. Ralph. Uh, Dana, what's your preference? Yeah. That, that's not a really choice. doesn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And runway's a runway. I mean, as long as it's, uh, as long as it's clean. And, uh, of course, I prefer hardtop. Hardtop. But what about uh, grooved versus ungrooved? I definitely prefer grooved. Oh yeah, I would. I would. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, yeah. Uh, there's no question about it because you know the, and this is actually a topic of conversation, and that's why I'm kind of hesitating because I was thinking about a conversation I had yesterday with a line check pilot. Um, it, it, I assumed in, per our um, manuals that uh, because we uh, say the groove, uh, we use the dry numbers uh, when we're on a grooved runway. I didn't think of it as being a contaminated runway because it's, you know, like if it's raining out, right? We use the dry numbers for takeoff. Mm-hmm. Right. Nick, you have to, I think on your aircraft, you have to use the wet numbers when it's raining out, correct? Uh, yeah, we, we use a matrix of uh, runway conditions and use the appropriate matrix uh, um, braking action. Yep. So, so if, it's, if it's wet, if it's more than three mils, it's wet. If it's less than three mils, it's dry. But uh, you do have to take into account the amount of rubber and uh, other things uh, on the surface, whether it's yeah, and, and and that was the part of the whole question because I, I always thought you know a wet runway was dry, you know because that's on our aircraft, our certification when it was certified that was the way it was done with the groove runway, is that I'd always thought, but that is actually not correct. Um, took me to the takeoff contamination chart that we have, and even though. We use the dry numbers. It's considered still considered contaminated, even though it's raining um, on a groove runway. And I, 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 I was completely wrong on that because uh, it's just the, the exception on uh, the car vote for the 88 and the 90. Um, every other aircraft at Acme has to use the wet, wet data. So um, I like groove runways because uh, they're much safer. Um, Less chance of hydroplaning uh, in in wet wet weather, um, but in dry weather, it really 
it really doesn't matter either type of a runway. Yeah. Nick? I must admit, my preference is for the high-tech black tops uh, because um, concrete is fine, and grooved, but it's not nearly as efficient as a, uh, a modern black top at uh, uh, draining water off because a modern black top is not like you get on your drive or on a road. Um, the upper surface is porous, semi-porous, and uh, it will actually pull water away from the surface allow it to flow just below the level of the top of the uh, tarmacadam or whatever the formal name they have for uh, uh, that sort of black um, surface. I think they refer uh, to it, uh, the, I've heard to it referred to as porous friction overlay. Oh, that sounds very, yeah, that sounds very good. I like that. Okay. The porous friction overlay. Uh, and it is absolutely brilliant at uh, clearing the runway of uh, standing water and making sure you've got a good surface to land on. So um, th that is definitely my preferred uh, option. Well, but the only thing I would say on that, though, is that the as the temperature rises, does, doesn't that type of material become uh, a little more soft, like with the airplane will, you know, Take a little more. I'm in England. Yeah, it doesn't oh, get warm. I mean, the material uh, is it will work very well within within its design temperature band. And you'd have to get it pretty damn hot, I think, to work outside that band. And if uh, in a, if you're in a country where the temperatures are regularly so hot that you need to use a different surface, then I guess you just pour concrete. But I mean, I don't like concrete runways because they've got uh you know lots of ridges and edges on them they're uh you know they they make a lot of noise when you land on them you know i, I like the smooth touch of rubber on blacktop oh that's gonna i'm gonna have to cut that one out <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I love that. i honestly don't think i ever ever, ever landed on a blacktop runway at, 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 at Acme. Yeah, they're very uncommon, all the places that we go. Nick, they're all concrete, uh, most of them grooved. So uh, okay. we don't know any better. Do you, do you have under runway heating? No. Oh, no. dear. Okay. So, uh, I mean, when I'm when I'm flying GA, it's mostly blacktop. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with the uh, – here in the States, uh, you know, obviously that's all my experience is, is – you know, we, we get so warm here that the blacktop would be an issue under such heavy weight. Like, uh, I know I've DC, Jeff. Yeah. Around the ramp is a lot of blacktop. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to use a lot of extra power to taxi because in, during the summertime, it, it, it does get soft. They have, they've had issues in the past. I think they've made uh, some significant efforts to improve that uh, by resurfacing and and uh, keeping that from happening but yeah you'll actually sometimes sink into the uh, the blacktop taxiways taxiing out and you know sometimes even with both engines running at LaGuardia it was the same way uh, there were places where you knew that you wouldn't want to stop because uh, it was going to be hard to get the airplane rolling again because you kind of sink down and uh, I, I think there's there's a bunch of different technologies for this type of surface. Yeah. And uh, uh, 
a decent, uh, it's going to be expensive, but a decent blacktop surface will have a PCN number that is suitable for your aircraft, regardless of the temperature. And for those who don't know, uh, PCN is a pavement classification number. And uh, you have an ACN on your aircraft uh, and uh, that uh, must relate to the um, uh, the capability of the runway you're landing on to withstand the weight of your aircraft obviously depends on not just the weight but the number of tires and the pressure of the tires all those factors come into it uh, and so long as you've checked your numbers and for a big airplane like the 340 600 it's quite an important thing because there's an awful lot of airports we go to where if we try uh, you know uh, or might divert it say an emergency diversion where when you, if you landed you're going to leave grooves all down the runway and uh, you're going to sink up to your axles once you come to a halt but you you get the airplane down uh, so you know that's why we would consider using them places like churchill in uh, in northern Canada and uh, places like that where you, it really is an emergency only landing and uh, you might actually wreck the runway if you did land there. But uh, no, a, de a decent uh, and high-tech blacktop, is, I, I think, is the, the best runway you can have. So this PCN and ACN, uh, I don't know the words that are coming from your mouth. Nah. I've never heard of that stuff. Oh, big jet stuff. Sorry, Completely guys. foreign to me. <laughs> All right. Well, Ralph, hopefully that uh, answered your question. Uh-oh. Some bad behaviors, maybe? Uh, this passenger on a Frontier flight uh, was led away from the gate in handcuffs last week. Apparently, he was uh, seated in a place on this Frontier flight and uh, was grabbing two different women and uh, they moved him to a different seat further back in the airplane and advised the lady sitting across the aisle that uh, watch out for him and let us know if he starts to try to grab you and apparently he decided that uh, the best thing to do in this situation is just to pull out the uh, pull out the equipment and uh, urinate uh, into the seat uh, in front of you <laughs> I, I'm laughing. Yeah. It's not funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but I'm laughing because I, what else do you do when you see someone behaving so poorly? Obviously, this person, uh, I, well, I, they said that uh, the man drank two double shots of vodka on the flight. Probably more. Maybe he was doing some kind of drugs. Who knows what was going on with this guy, but apparently he was not acting appropriately. Maybe he took one of the, what do they call those pills? Ambien. Maybe he had an Ambien and then decided he would just down it with uh, uh, two double shots of vodka. I don't know. But uh, whatever was in his system obviously was making him uh, behave inappropriately. Um, and, there, and there's a photo in this story where you can actually see the little stream of urine coming from his lap area and hitting the seat in front of him. That's yeah. got to be just a I, I love thing. the picture of him being taken away in handcuffs. That policeman is about three feet taller. I, know. <laughs> I was looking at the thing. Either that guy was a very, very small man or the police officer is a very large man or maybe both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, and I also like the quote from the, uh, the lady identified as Emily. I hear a woman scream. If this man effing touches me one more time, I'll effing kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, and I scream at when she's watching him 
peeing. He's effing peeing. He's peeing. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think. I an airplane is, is not a great place to be in when you're shoved up against your fellow human being. No. And we all know how stressful it is. When you get people behaving like this, it turns what could be a, you know quite an acceptable experience, even fun, into something that's appalling. Yeah, not a good place for this kind of no. behavior. Okay, well, we're just going to have to wait until next time to hear uh, Captain Nick answer... Uh, John's question for him regarding Heathrow ATC. Well, I'm just going to quote Adam. <laughs> well, that's fine. Quote Adam. We'll have to wait for Adam's quote on the next episode. Bo Abrahamson, uh, Dr. Bo, is, uh, has some audio uh, for us regarding a video and uh, some other good feedback for you. So uh, until then, uh, we're going to put those off and we're going to conclude with telling you that if you want to learn more about the show, a good place to do it is to head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website and uh, there you'll find information about the crew, the community, uh, merchandise, the coffee fund. Uh, we have what? APG Live. Of course, the ever popular Plane Tales. It's a separate page along with a way that you can... Uh, get the RSS feed URL to uh, have it come to your podcast playing device and listen to all the wonderfulness of Plain Tales. And uh, you can learn about the way that you can find the apps that we have available for you uh, for free without advertising on the iOS App Store and the uh, Android App Store. I guess it would be the Google Play Store. So check it out. And uh, we have some presence in the social media. And Captain Nick, would you like to uh, enlighten us with that? Oh, yes, of course. You can find us on Facebook, the normal Facebook address, followed by Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, we're there on Twitter. And you can get us uh, by attaching at APG Crew. And then, of course, we have a presence on Slack. We do. And Hillel will tell us about that. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo 1. And see you in Slack. All right. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And another uh, great uh, thanks to our producer, Liz Piper, for helping us uh, manage all the stuff behind the scenes. We really appreciate you. And... Uh, look forward to having Steph back with us next episode after she comes back from her wherever she is, and she's going to tell us all about that. And again, if you're still listening, Steph, I doubt she is, but if you are, again, uh, happy birthday wishes from all of us on the crew and the community. And until Absolutely. next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Good day.